Well, Madeline is what we would call an imperfect witness, right? Like she, she's somebody right. who has a lot of holes in her story and her narrative. <laughs> it's very easy for us to judge. We have to start pulling in character witnesses to explain her behavior. Like yeah. there's definitely that. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Okay, we're back. You're here? Yes. We're both back. I got a Diet Coke, so I'm going to get <laughs> some caffeine it's in me. It's wild. It is wild what a marathon these episodes have been. We were texting this morning, and Sarah was like, I woke up this morning and was like, we're going to do it. We're going to get done <laughs> today. We're going to do it. da 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 literally rocky vibes like this episode is gonna be at least 15 hours i am sleeping in tomorrow i'm sorry that you have oh same editing (laughs) same it's friday night right now and i'm like nobody texts me i'm not going anywhere i am finishing this fucking episode and i'm going to bed and then tomorrow i am spending all of saturday editing because i want to get this episode into the hot little hands of the zala gang but it's gonna be like 20 hours of raw audio so there's gonna be a lot of editing to do so much and people are like release the century cut release the connor (laughs) cut i'm like no very important (laughs) how the sausage is made in episode 100 thing for you to understand <laughs> i cut about 20 percent of the raw audio every episode yeah because the way this show works is it's me and my friends just like sort of extemporaneously talking and there's always gonna be a pause where we're like shit what are we saying yeah or like wait what issue is that yeah because i want my guests to come across the best they possibly can yeah we have now been on a roller coaster tour of Madeline Pryor's 40 years of publication. And now it's time for questions from listeners like you. I said I would talk a little more about the questions when we got here. Here's the thing, guys. I had to delete the mods help me delete. And shout out to the Cerebro mods. This podcast would not be possible without the Discord server. At this point, like, the community that has formed around this podcast means everything to me. And the moderators are the ones who make it run. Keep it because going. Yeah. I can't, like, I can And Sarah, you should join us. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, now that the 100th For episode... this episode, you have to, like, the people in that Discord, and there are 3,600 of them at this point you are like one of their favorite people on earth and you just need to be you need to be in the discord server it's so funny too because i feel like i'm the madeline and they're the gene where they're just like we like you madeline and i'm just and you're like i don't believe you but like if you were there i've been on twitter like and you have the purple guest flair that i give all my guests and it said Sarah Century, people would be freaking out. It would be like Beatlemania. You don't even understand. <laughs> oh, I will join. I will join for Beatlemania. I can do it. Good. 
<laughs> for this goblin night. I'm going to put Discord on my, I'm going to just put Discord on my phone finally, which has been there something you go. that so many have tried. Here's my thing. Teeny and I were just talking about this earlier. I think everyone our age, and by our age, I mean like 35 to 40. Yeah. Because I just turned 35 and you just turned 40. And that's mm -hmm. like the specific micro generation I'm talking about. Yes. I was just watching Alaska Thunderfuck 5000 talk about this. Everyone our age is like, I need to leave social media because it's poisoning my Oof. brain. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were there when it started and we were adults and, and it sure poisoned our brains. Yeah. Yeah. Discord, I think, is the future. Like forums like that, where it's like these people are meant to be here because we all want to talk about the same stuff and we can moderate this and we don't need to rely on some corporate freak. Like, I don't need yeah. Elon Musk to moderate this. <laughs> oh. That kind of moderated Very social media is, I Twitter. think, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the vibe going forward. Yeah. Anyway, what I want to say about these questions is, like I said, over 200 of you wrote in. Thank you. I don't know the exact number. It was like 230 something. Yeah. I am so appreciative, but we can't get to all of them. I picked a bunch from the first 100 that I thought were good. And then also... I'm not answering questions that ask me specifically, what do you think should happen to Madeline Pryor next? Can't do that. We're both writers. <laughs> We're both writers. We would both like to write for Marvel at some point. Marvel, if you're listening. I mean, I still, if they're listening. Vicky, Montesi. <laughs> I just, you can't see this because you're listening to audio. I just <laughs> threw my hands up in the air. Like, that's what I was about to say. We both, like, went into a conniption fit, like, right Nothing there. Nothing we like, throwing in our the world. Around. Like, as much as I want to write X-Men, I would love. Let me and Sarah Century have a co-writer crack at Vicky Montesi. Like. 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 <laughs> who made Vicky Montesi go viral? Us. Us. No one ever in history. Yeah, you were like, oh, I miss Vicky Montesi. And I was like, yes. And it was one of those moments where we were the only two people. <laughs> anyway, we're going to get into the questions. But yes, we're both writers. I don't want to tell you my ideas for Maddie. I already gave too much away when I said that she and Amanda Sefton would be fun together as like friends. Yes. But it's just true. So yeah, I, mean, I don't see any harm like in saying paper, it. Right. Yeah. That aside, we're not going to get too deep into that, but we are going to answer whatever questions we can answer. And I appreciate, as always, my mod team for filtering out questions that had too many plot ideas. Because at this point, as someone who maybe does want to write comics... You can't even look at that. Legally, I can't... And this is something for people to know if they're writing emails in. It's different from the early days of the podcast. I can't look at an email that gives too many specific ideas about stories. So that's just something to know if you're writing in. Yeah. Because I don't want it to ever be a legal concern. So yeah. And just that's to what be that clear is. too, some people send me things via DM and I like just And you close it immediately. You're like, I'm not looking at that. Anymore. Right. And at that point, you can't really interact with that person going forward in a way because it's like... Right, you can't really ever speak to them again. You're like, oh, I don't want to open your email and see stuff that I shouldn't see. Like, before this episode, people had tried to, like, email being like, oh, you should talk about this. And I'm like, you should never say stuff like that to me. <laughs> 
my friends who write for Marvel Comics or DC Comics, yeah. they're always saying to me, they're like, I have to mute people who are fans of me. Yes. Because they're like, I hate to do it, but like, yeah. It's people who get enthusiastic and like, it would be great if this happened in this issue. And it's like, I can't, I, I can't literally legally cannot read this yeah. if I'm going to be on social media. So, yeah. You're you like, know, you're putting me tricky. in like a legal. You're putting me right in now. a tricky position. And I know you don't mean to, but At I have all, to yeah. actually like mute you. I don't want to block you because that's hostile, but I have to mute you because you can't be suggesting things to me that are similar to things I might one day do. Yeah. So anyway, moving on. Now it's time. We're here. The Goblin Question Corner. It is time <laughs> for the Q&A. And while I'm saying, like, the second hundred of you, I did have to cut off. There are still more questions in this Google Doc that I put together than I've ever done for any episode. So <sighs> we're going to marathon our way through these as best we can. It is like... 1 15 in the morning where sarah is but we're just gonna power through because she's committed she told me no, she was check committed it out. the fire behind me and me being like <laughs> <laughs> that's everything. fire and life incarnate right <laughs> phoenix madeline <laughs> so here we go it is i'm actually looking at this good dog is 21 pages the average Cerebro episode, the Q&A doc I make is nine pages. Oh, man. But I was like, I have to. I There's too many good questions. And it's episode 100. And we're going to yeah. give them so much content. Yeah. But the Q&A has to be, like, substantial. I hope you take two, three months off after this. I am taking at least one month off, potentially two. Mm -hmm. Depends when Hickman can record because yes. he is the premiere. And I can say that now officially because he confirmed via email that like he's still in because nice. when we first were recording I was like wait actually let me check with him before I say that on the air because if I say it on the air and then he's busy because he just announced his new book with Valeria Skitti gods right. and I was like wait if he's not available then I will have really Screwed embarrassed myself so I yeah say. it was just good to double check in I can't believe we got here this is nuts <laughs> This is the fourth session, and every time we've just been like, will anyone listen to this for this long? <laughs> and here's the thing. They will. <laughs> they will. No, that's I mean, the thing, the, Sarah. The, the, like, Candy Southern thing, right? Where it was just, like, five That hours. was the longest episode of this podcast until recently, and yeah. I spent time editing to make sure that stayed the longest episode of yes. this podcast but eventually i couldn't do it like threnity yes. and jamie braddock are both longer because frankly jordan block's too funny and holly raymond's too smart yes. and i couldn't cut anything further or yes. i would have felt like i was depriving the people so i was yes. like okay these are going to be longer than candy southern but now this is the longest episode forever. Whether or not on Spotify it's two parts, which it might be, I'm just we're saying. We're never doing this again. We're and never yet, doing this again. This has been a goddamn delight. This is the episode that is 10 to 20 hours. I don't yes. even know yet how long it's going to be. And it <laughs> is going to be a momentous occasion that people remember for years to come. Anyway, time for... Keith C. Amaral writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. Connor, I can only imagine the outpouring of love you'll get on this very important milestone for people much better at using their words than I. Aww. But nonetheless, I will always take pride in my status as an early entrant to the Zala gang. 
It's become a defining characteristic. I remember seeing someone retweet your first episode on Betsy, and at a time when I was starving for more X-Men content, I hearted that tweet to bookmark it and come back to. That remains the ultimate validation of the years I've spent doom-scrolling that terrible website. <laughs> Keith, thank you so much. Yeah. So... It's not false modesty every week, but I'm like, oh my God, that's very sweet. I feel weird reading this because I do get very shy about reading these emails when they are very complimentary toward me and praise me a lot. But I've decided for episode 100, her, 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 she, 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 this is my show. It's episode 100. Say whatever you want. I'm going to read all of it. (laughs) All of it. I'm reading all of it, baby. And But I just do want to say before we start, everyone who listens to this show has changed my life. I am writing my own comics project with friend of the pod, Josh Cornillon, because I felt emboldened to be someone out in front instead of just an agent assisting people because you listening told me that you love me and that you think that I'm good at this and you think that I have a point of view worth looking at. And that made me, an obsessive compulsive eating disordered freakazoid, feel confident enough to be like, I could be a creator. And you did that. And I will never be able to thank you enough for that. And I'm gonna say, I think that this comic idea sounds really great. Sarah's read the sample pages and she quite (laughs) liked them, so. And you know me, horror fan to the end, so. I'm going to keep reading Keith's letter now. Sorry, Keith. I just had to pause there because I truly, like, it's hard. It's hard when you're the host to, like, read things aloud about yourself that are so nice. But it is because of all of you that I feel now, at age 35, like, I can do anything. I really do. Yeah. I'm so grateful. I really am. I love you all so much. Anyway, getting back to it, getting back to it, getting back to it. My question's very meta, and with episode 100, there's no place for the unassuming, correct? You better bask in what you've done for this fandom, Connor. I'm especially curious to know Sarah's take on this as another Gene fan like myself. Maddie is an interesting case for me because I believe I always approach the character similarly, I think, to a lot of the writers who wrote her other than maybe Claremont. That approach was of someone who was a placeholder for Jean, easily cast out when real deal Jean made her triumphant return. Just a clone, only a copy, the red hair, but none of the power. Answer honestly, Connor. Do you think your love for this character and the immense success of your podcast has contributed to everyone re-examining Maddie in the way she was always intended as a tragic character deserving of empathy and a chance to exist on her own terms? Granted, I was barely a teenager when I learned of Maddie and couldn't see the nuance that was likely always there. And I didn't participate much in the fandom, so maybe I'm completely tone-deaf to something always present and wanting to give too much credit to my favorite podcast. But I just don't ever recall witnessing a fan base for this character. Then there's Zaladane and Celine, who I'm positive you've just pilled everyone into thinking we've loved all along. I can safely say your love for not just Maddie, but Every character you so diligently try to give a stage to each week continues to inspire me and deepen my own love for this insane franchise. I thought I loved weird shit, but you keep making me discover there's even weirder shit to love. Thank you truly. Here's to thousands more hours of this work of art you've created. 
Keith. This episode is a thousand hours alone, so. I put that one first because it made me cry. It's beautiful. That's a beautiful sentiment. Like, Because that's all I want is for this to mean something to people. I put so much of my time into this outside of my actual job. And I do it because I love doing it. And I do it most of all because of all of you. I mean, so many people write in, God, people write in to tell me they came out to their parents because of this podcast. People write in to tell me that they're the only gay person in their town and they feel like they have a friend because of this podcast. People write in to me and tell me that they are a straight white guy who's never thought about stories this way, but now... They are, and they're grateful. People write into me and tell me that they loved this stuff when they were a kid, but it wasn't cool to love comics back then, so they fell off. And now, because of this podcast, they've come back in. And I was that person. I was always ashamed to talk about this stuff because it was nerd shit. And kids, before the MCU was the only thing that mattered financially in Hollywood anymore, it was not cool to like comic books. Yo, in the 90s, <laughs> being a girl who like loved comics was not fucking cool, right? Like, no. I would go pick up a comic and it would be like the boobs and butt in the same, like the same. Lady direction. Death with like yeah. her cheeks perked. And it would be like, it was almost like, oh shit, like you're like a pervert or something. And well, it's especially like, if you're a lesbian who's yeah, still dealing with that, that's its own like, like 12, crisis, right? right? Yeah. yeah, no, I'm having the same gay crisis about all of the like huge swollen muscle peck titties in these comics of all the men. Yeah. So to answer this question from Keith. Yes, many layered question. I think Zeb Wells always intended to do something with Madeline before I ever got started in this fandom space. Zeb is also someone who imprinted on Inferno at an early age, is extraordinarily sympathetic to Madeline, and Hellions was coming out the first couple issues when this podcast debuted. So Madeline was already in that arc and already all of those things were happening. And I think it's that arc that made a lot of new readers extremely sympathetic to Madeline because that death scene in Alex's arms is devastating. Yeah. Do I think that I also created a big cultural conversation in the very small cultural microcosm that is X-Men fans on the internet about Madeline Pryor? I think I did. And I feel good about that. The stats don't lie. Like when Hellions 18 was solicited and she was on the cover of the variant, 300 people tagged the podcast. That's cool. And that was the first thing, honestly, the first moment I really felt like I had like a real impact was all of those people tagging me about Madeline coming back. I was like, oh, this is like dozens and dozens and dozens of people who know that I love this character. And that's cool, right? Yeah. So I think that, I impacted the conversation in that way, but I don't necessarily think that that impacted the creative decisions. I personally would, as an outsider, agree with that. And then I would say too, that part of Keith's question was about how kind of Jean relates to Madeline and how Madeline relates to Jean, right? Mm -hmm. And how as a Jean fan, Keith was saying that doesn't necessarily, it Madeline doesn't always click or didn't always click, right? Right. I first read Madeline in X-Man, so it was like totally removed and I loved Madeline. And whenever you look back at Inferno, I think that Inferno is 
perhaps, because a lot of people will say Dark Phoenix is maybe the best X-Men. But I don't agree. I think Claremont had eight more years to cook on Inferno and it's just better. I think that Inferno is the best. And I say that as someone who like deeply, we never- I love Dark Phoenix. I'm just saying like, if we're going to rank them, I think Inferno is better. I think Mutant Massacre is also better. Mutant Massacre is fucking good. And like, these are really good stories. I think that once you start to get into the Outback, even without Gene, I think that Claremont is doing Gene shit, right? Like he's doing Gene things. And as much as they're adversaries, I never view Gene and Madeline as either being the same person or being uh, in contradiction to each Opposites, other. right. Like yeah. I don't, it's, it just doesn't, it's more complicated than that, right? And so I think that that's where I'm at. Is, is that I even from the beginning, I loved Madeline because of what Madeline tells me about Jean, first of all. I'm going to pause you there because, again, I have like 50 questions in this doc. And I yeah. think that we're starting to touch on things that other questions sure. can ask. But great thoughts. And we'll get back to them soon. Thanks. And thanks, Keith. Because like, that's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful email. I'm like, let's focus in on the specific thing Keith was asking and get to other questions. Because sure. I don't want to accidentally get to a question later and be like, oh, we already answered that. We answered that's this all. one. Again, how the sausage is made a little bit. Yes. I try to order the questions. Rob Secundus of Comics XF writes, Dear Cerebro, congratulations on your centennial. Here's hoping for a hundred and a hundred and a thousand more. My question concerns the Madisons. When I first began following comics as they came out in the 2010s, it seemed like a bunch of characters were fairly off limits. Maddie Pryor popped up once, disastrously, but overall <laughs> it seemed like Marvel was wary of using her and any other character with a similarly snarled continuity. Now she's made a big comeback, and in general it feels like stories are more comfortable making wild pulls of obscure, complicated characters. What changed? Is it that nostalgia for those characters has finally grown enough that editors are willing to take the risk with using them? Though that would be odd. It's the 90s that should be coming into its own now, not the 80s. Is it that podcasts like your own, Jay and Miles, Battle of the Atom, etc., and or other fan resources have just made continuity more accessible than before to new readers? Or is it that the comics industry has shrunk to the point where you can be sure there's very few new readers compared to all of us middle-aged fans with encyclopedic knowledge of the stories we read in our youth? Something else? Best, Robert Secundus. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is that there's no overstating the importance of the queer people who have been reading X-Men doing podcasts because Jay and Miles definitely got me back into kind of... It's like I've always been an X-Men fan and I would meet other queer X-Men fans who were like cool. Like I was in the music scene for a long time. So I'd Mm -hmm. be like, you would be at a show and you'd be like, what's up with that X-Force shirt from like 1990? Right. No, like you'd connect over other things. And you'd be like, what about Daddy Moonstar? You know, like that kind of stuff. So I think that it was waiting for it. And I have to say that, yeah, you know, Jay and Miles is huge. You really can't. I, we uh, interviewed Jay on Bitches on Comics. And the whole time we were just kind of, like, I was just like, I've heard every episode of this podcast. It's wild to even hear your voice because like, <laughs> I'm just so used to hearing it in my head. But then also you're engaging with the subject matter in a way where it's like the people who are telling you about it a little bit, you're like, that's right. I forgot about that. Or like, whatever. 
I think that there's no overstating the importance of podcasts when it comes to this kind of resurgence in X-Fandom. I think all the factors you identify are part of it. Comics has become more of a hobbyist thing. And so there's an expectation that fans who are picking up monthly comics are more up on continuity. I think it's also, it's not just podcasts, it's the internet. Like when I was a teenager, UncannyXMen.net was the only game in town and they killed it. Yeah. I always shout them out on this podcast because I don't think this podcast would be remotely possible without the wealth of resources that they've accumulated and all the work that they've done. Yeah. So I always want to shout them out. Yeah. But I was 13. I mean, like there is, I've mentioned this in some episodes, but I'm embarrassed by it. So I don't mention it often, but like the X Limericks page on UncannyXMen.net. I wrote those in the forums when I was 13 years old as forum user revanche. (laughs) And you can verify it because they're published as by Connor G. So, you know. This fandom has always held me down, but it's more accessible now than ever because there's a Marvel wiki. And like much as I criticize it because it's often wrong, it's not like like the the sheer fact of that. You don't have to go looking for UncannyXMen.net. You don't have to go looking for the Marvel Universe appendix. Yeah, There's more accessible stuff. And like Wikipedia for comics is not always great, but like these fan wikis... As long as you click the like sources cited and double yeah, check the that's issues, that's what you gotta do. Yeah, people are invested, and I think the continuity has therefore become more accessible. I think Marvel Unlimited is also invaluable. There are people in my Discord who are like eighteen, nineteen. To, we're eighteen plus, but like they are young, and they are like oh, I'm just going to start the Claremont run on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah. And they can do that. Yeah. We had to gather trade no. paperbacks <laughs> and single issues and floppies and all that shit. And even essential X-Men <laughs> in black and white yeah. without the Glynis Oliver colors. What's the I fucking know. point? Phone book size. Anyway, my point is just, I do think that there is a belief at this point. Like if you go back, actually just listen to Chuck Austin last episode, he was talking about how the movies, the X-Men movies, which have no bearing on continuity whatsoever yeah was their north star yeah that was that moment because the expectation at that point after the bubble had burst was not that people would be buying comics mm-hmm. so it was like every issue should be their first issue and i do think that now there is an expectation that either it's not your first issue because comics is a shrinking hobbyist industry or You'll catch up on Unlimited, or if we like put an editor's note that this happened in Uncanny X-Men such and such in 1983, you'll go check. And in many ways, this was kind of always the way, because I mean, I don't know where you picked up. Oh, we would hunt for them, but it took time. Yeah, I mean, the first X-Men issues I found, I remember just being like Marvel holiday special stuff and like... You know, uh, I believe like the first issues I actually bought were like Generation X number like six and like Uncanny X-Men number 326 where Gambit's choking out Sabretooth and you're just like, (laughs) who the fuck are these people? But it doesn't matter. You're immediately compelled by them. And that's kind of it, right? And now you can so easily access all of the backstory if you want to. You guys are sage. Like, you can do sage stuff. (laughs) The kids these days truly are all Tessa in a way that we never (laughs) anticipated. But also, like, 
there's so much of it that I do think uh, a guide is still necessary. And that's sure. why resources like Travis Starnes or Comic Book Herald or Crushing Crisis are all super valuable yeah. to newer fans. Yeah. And I think that this podcast is also valuable in that way. And I take yep. pride in that. Yeah. But in terms of Madeline herself, I think it's a combo of people who were reading Inferno as it came out when they were kids are like 40 now and therefore yes. a high percentage of the people writing comics. Yes. And editorially, there's less hesitation about the idea of like this character's too obscure because it's easier for new fans to read old material than it ever was before. Yeah. And at this point, as <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it's like uh, every X Man has committed an atrocity at this point, pretty much. Oh, so for sure. Like, Maddie, again, as we said, Maddie. End of Inferno, all the violence got rewound. She barely hurt anybody. Yeah, Wolverine has killed way more people. Like, way more people. Like a ridiculous amount more people. Did she think about killing her baby? Yes. yes. Did she intend to? Yes. Did she yes. do it? No. no. And then they had a lovely astral stroll together in the pages of James Robinson's Cable. So cable it's fine. Cable number 44 happened and it's cool. It's fine. Cable's not mad. Why are you mad? Yeah, no kidding. We're the ones that have to worry about it, not you. <laughs> Like, <laughs> that's what I always say about X-Men continuity. I have to worry about that. Not I have to worry about this. Nobody else I has do. to worry about You this. think this I'm not brain. worried about it? That's why I tell you not to worry about it. It's because I worry, worry about, about it, it all the time. <laughs> don't worry about it means you don't worry about it. I will worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to worry my ass off. I'm going to read these next two together because yes. they're kind of overlapping. So Joe sure. Blauberg writes, Dear Connor and Cerebro's esteemed lesbian correspondent, <laughs> Sarah. Finally, the big one, the Madeline Pryor episode the entire Cerebro fandom's been waiting for, and with the wonderful Sarah Century, no less, I simply could not resist writing in to this monumental Cerebro event. The character that Madeline Pryor was previous to her transformation to the Goblin Queen was fantastic. She was a tough, quick-witted pilot who took no guff from no one know-how. Why I always found Madeline's fall to be so tragic is that she was such a compelling, interesting, and downright badass character for years before the build-up to Inferno. After her transformation into the Goblin Queen, that original character gets lost in the shuffle of anger, grief, and baby-sacrificing. So my question is this. Do you think we'll ever get to see Madeline again as she was before she made the deal with Sim? Or does she always need to be the Goblin Queen to somehow salvage Cyclops' character after he abandoned her and their child to hang out with his high school girlfriend? Thank you for such a wonderful show and everything you do. Joe Blauberg, Joe of X on the Discord. And then... In a similar vein, Fiona Codia writes, do you think we'll ever come to a point when Madeline Pryor is beyond being the Goblin Queen? Like maybe she could retire to a nice treehouse, chill, and not have shit constantly thrown her way? Or I don't know, maybe she could somehow find a way to be anodyne again? And I think these are similar and interesting questions, right? Yes. I will say that the healer idea of Anodyne and the great destructive power of Madeline is the great 
wonder of Madeline, right? That's the thing to lean into, right? We love the fact that she's the healer and the destroyer. The healer right? and the destroyer in a way that Jean is, but very differently from very Jean. Very different than Jean. Jean is that cosmically. Madeline is that very physically and brutally and in person in a way that the Phoenix is not. Yes. I want to say, too, that when you're looking at the old school, you look at this old school of uh, when Claremont first comes into the X-Men, the X-Men Cyclops, mm -hmm. whenever we lead into the Phoenix saga, Cyclops is screaming, losing his shit and like is a leader, but in a different way, right? We'll never see that Cyclops again. And that's okay. Like we, it's, I love that Scott. Like we have to get through that Scott in order to get to where we are today. And that's how I feel about Madeline is we have this Madeline that we all, we all walk through doors in life. We all would love. Go backwards. As a 35 year old man who on his 35th birthday was reflecting a lot about the many choices, positive and negative, that he has made over 35 years of life. We all would love to be pilot Madeline again. Yeah. But that's not life. That's not how it works, Once right? Once you have experienced the trajectory of time and the might and the power and the crushing pain of time, you would never try to go backwards through it to become who you once were right so like that's the thing about time and the passage of time and i feel that madeline more than literally any other character knows that and so the way that you lean into madeline as the pilot is to see madeline accepting that as horrible as going forward is we're all going forward all of the time and you can't do shit to stop that. And if you could, you wouldn't because who Madeline becomes later is who matters, right? It's like, that's the person. That's where she about has the, the agency. That's the thing is like when we talk the about goblin the goblin queen, queen is the most iconic form of Madeline and therefore no. We can never escape her, but I think she can become a character like Ilyana. Yes. Where the dark child, the most iconic form of Ilyana, is part of Ilyana, but not 100% of who the character is. Yes. But I don't think you can ever get back to before Inferno. In issue 168, she's not asking the questions that Madeline of Inferno is asking. And we need those questions asked, right? They're important and she wouldn't want us not to ask them now yeah. that she's asked them. You can't yes. unring the bell, right? And that's her whole point, right? Like that's kind of the thing with Madeline. Her existence is the result of like several regrettable decisions behind the scenes. And yeah. that's why, like when I say that Mr. Sinister represents editorial, that's cheeky, but it's also not because like what she keeps saying is like, my life was never real. I was never supposed to exist. And that's because she is an artificial construct of editorial fiat that then was given life by Chris Claremont and became a real girl. Yes. But at the end of the day, that initial origin story is something insurmountable. And if you're her, you have to grapple with it. Yeah. There's something really funny about a character that keeps coming back from the dead and consistently calls out how inconsistently written she's been, right? Yes. Like there's something about Madeline 
where she shows up. Every time she comes back, the writer writing her feels the need to say, wow, what last time I was here was, was weird, right? <laughs> yeah, I love this character. It's like the potential of Madeline is flooring. And I, I mean, we talked about it at length in this episode. Starting with 168, we are fucking team Madeline. Like, we are on Madeline's side. I am 1,000% on her side until her, like, X Factor 38 deep psychotic break. Sure. But and that's because that's what Wheezy is doing there on purpose. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah. Because, again, this is what editorial has told them to do. She does the job that needs to be done. Yes. Which is, we need you to repair Scott and Jean here. And now, 35 years later, it's very easy for us to criticize the characterization. But how were they to know that fans would rally around Madeline Pryor for decades afterward? Like, they didn't <laughs> have any reason to think that. Yeah. They were doing their fucking job, even if Chris was not happy about it, evidently, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the thing with Madeline is I look back at my own self and I think I would never, I can never... We can never go back. We can't go back. I think with Madeline, when it's like, when I want her to just go back to being like a pilot with like a cute little bob is I think of the Kate Bush song as I often do. And so is love from the red shoes. Yes. The chorus there where she says, we used to say, oh, hell, we're young. But now we see that life is is sad and so is love and that's always the lyric i think of because it's like yeah you want to go back but you can't that's not how life works it's not how love works and it wasn't so fucking great back then either like she can't go back to that honeymoon issue because she knows who scott is now yeah and she can't go back to being that pilot because now via retcon she knows that mr sinister created her to be a cow yeah and she can't get over that yeah and she shouldn't have to. And it's no, because that's fucked perfect. up. Yeah. That's the thing with Madeline is, is like, it's almost as horrible as her story goes. You're just like, fuck. Yeah. Like, yeah. Madeline, Go off, like, bitch. Like, that's, that's the thing. It's hard not feel. to root for her. It just <laughs> like, is. And that's where she connects to Medea most profoundly. Yeah. Because when we talked about Medea earlier, it's yeah. like, Medea's obviously wrong to do what she does, but at the yes. same time, you're like, yes, bitch, do it. And it's like, it's such a real world thing of like cishet patriarchy kind of shit where like the way that people treat her and like the way that she loves her kids, but like nobody else loves her kids. And so it enables her in trying to protect them to harm them and like there it's just like a it's a great complexity and i feel like that's the same that we see working through madeline prior but it's like yeah of course she'll never go back because even just the way that other people view her could never go back like she's a different person now mm -hmm. and you'll never you never can go backwards like it's just not how it is yeah and i don't think she would want to I don't think she would want thing. to. 
and I don't think I want her to, you know, it's like, I love her. Like that, that was the thing. We love her every step of the, the well, way. Well, like the question of like, like the healer stuff would be cool to see back, but like, should she, could she somehow go back to being anodyne? And again, like with the two definitions of anodyne, I don't Maybe. think Madeline Pryor <laughs> could ever go back to being someone whose name might be construed to mean inoffensive. Yeah. Yeah, never. That's like never again, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. It's a complicated question, but I love it. Reed Lee writes, hello, Connor and Sarah. Reading AXE Judgment Day on Unlimited last night and was struck by the similarities between Moira McTaggart and Madeline Pryor. Both were not only baseline humans, but strong, smart, badass Claremont dames that became the focal characters of the two best X-Men stories. Moira was the most important human character in the X-Men for about 30 years and apparently is now a permanent villain. TBD, I guess. Madeline was only around for five years before she turned, but then remained the underboob queen for 30 years. For some reason, I'm fine with Moira's new role because I feel we had a good run with her as an ally. Yet I feel Madeline got royally shafted and permanently stuck as a not very complex villain. Her evolution between Fall of the Mutants and Inferno is one of the best dark turns in comics. But ever since Inferno, it seems like she just sneers about her mistreatment and her manipulation by men. It's just not an interesting motivation to me in terms of a continued villain. Plus, Jean Grey got to come back as a hero once her villain turn ran its course. Why why can't Maddie get the same grace? It's yet another way Maddie was shafted where Jean was shown forgiveness by the writers. Is there any hope that writers will redeem Madeline or is she too far gone? Until the Disney store sells Mr. Sinister was right t-shirts. Make mine Cerebro read. Mr. Sinister was never right. Just I know. I know. That was the, that's the point. It's like when yeah. pigs fly, right? Yeah. This email was sent in before Dark Web. And I have to say, Reed, I hope you enjoyed Dark Web as much as I did. Yes. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and I think it answered a lot of these questions. I don't think Maddie's ever going to be an unambiguous hero character, but I think that she could be someone like Wolverine, where you're like, okay, or even darker than that, like like the Punisher. Like She can be someone we will team up with in the right circumstances, but who we're like not 100% in approval of, and I think that would be fine. And the thing with Maddie is, is that, as I've said a few times during this podcast, is, is that she asks questions that nobody actually has answers for. And that is why she's the character that we actually need, right? Is like, she asks these questions that are moral quandaries that are left by the X-Men and their super righteous cause. She refuses to care about the conventions of the genre that she's existing yes. in. And that's really fun. Like she looks around, that's her like at Wolverine and Mariko's wedding, like looking into the bag and seeing Lockheed and being like, what the fuck is this? Like grabbing him by the tie. But they, she then does that forever. Like she, yeah. even after she's like the mutant clone phoenix host dark sorceress madeline she'll look around and she's like what the fuck is this like why is this happening and the yeah. reader is always thrown it's as i said earlier in like hours and hours and hours ago it's like a shakespearean problem play like she's one of those characters you're left unsettled when the story's over yeah i love her because of that like with regard to moira i do think they're similar yes. in that sense the idea that the maternal figure who was at the heart of our team was actually bad all along. 
I think Moira works where Madeline's twist doesn't entirely work because Moira was already a very mysterious character. And to me, the Moira X revelation explains Moira, explains why she behaves the way she does, and most importantly, creates new stories for her. The thing about the Goblin Queen in Inferno's context that's difficult is it's very clearly this character will be dead by the end of this event. Whereas Moira, I think, is in a position to be an iconic X-Men villain, potentially, for the next 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, they on purpose killed the Goblin Queen. Whenever we talk about the injustice towards the Goblin Queen, it's because... <laughs> it's because she was temporary, yeah, and we could all like, get tell. Get the hell out of here. Get this and, bitch the hell out of here. And then creators have struggled after to bring her back in because of that, right? Because of how strident it was in that yeah. mandate. With Moira, the idea is... I mean, like, here's the thing with Moira that's really key. And whenever people are upset about the Moira X retcon, this is what I point out. I'm like, Moira McTaggart was dead for 20 years before this retcon. Is it more important to you that she be a good guy or that she appear in stories? In comics, yeah. If you like the character, then a version of her that's evil, that's interesting, who continues to be published, is a cool thing to have exist. And that's also how I feel about Madeline. Yeah. I like I will read the old New Mutants with Moira McTaggart and whenever Rain does the thing where she's uh, hesitant to call her mom. Yeah. And then there's that scene where she hugs her and she's like, oh, I love you, mommy. Mommy, like, mommy, whatever. I love you. I die. And like we've talked about how like Rain is problematic and kind of shitty. And then you also <laughs> see Moira. She sucks like she's a nightmare person. But that doesn't change anything about what kills me about the interaction there right so it's like i love those characters as i know them and then like the opposite the stuff that happens with rain later i'm like what in the hell is happening with this story whereas the stuff that happens with moira i'm like it almost accentuates this story and the tragedy of it hickman's moira and then percy's moira in my opinion improve moira as a yeah. character and that's the difference to me yeah but like the thing with madeline that's so frustrating is the goblin queen does improve madeline as a character it's yeah. unfortunately just also the engine of her yes, disposal <laughs> whereas here it's like moira x the robot borg queen nightmare is a character I would love to see in comics for the next 20 years, yes. you know? Yes. So we'll see what happens. Yes. That's the bottom line. Is it character assassination of Moira? You could see it that way. But again, that bitch was dead for 20 years. Like, do you think the character's interesting and want to read about her or not? Yeah. Because she wasn't coming back as our friend who died in the year 2000. Who was and human. it's fun to read the old comics and be like, it's oh, it's so our good fun friend now. Moira. It's so fun now. Our best friend who would never lie to it us It adds such years. a hilarious <laughs> layer to so many classic stories now. <laughs> that were great stories already, but now they're yeah. even better because you're looking at her just like, damn, this cold, uh, if it isn't cold. That yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tori Bertrand writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest, first of all, thank you. I didn't know I needed a critical re-examination of my childhood characters through a queer lens. 
but I did. I'm a 50-something trans woman and love your podcast. Thank you, Tori. That's very sweet. About Maddie, why isn't she an Omega-level psychic? Is it just training? Sinister's made power using clones before, so we know he can. Maddie's powers always take a backseat to her magic powers, which I don't recall her ever putting any significant training into, a la Strange, Von Doom, or Rasputina. You're not wrong about the emphasis on her magic, but I think the Omega question is pretty simple. It's, oh, Sarah's kitty just came to say hello. That makes me happy. She came to scream into the microphone, actually. But she's so cute. She's beautiful. This was my oldest pet, actually. This is Shaka, who is Oh, I love her. She is making loud noises. I'm going to have to cut (laughs) from the audio. I'm literally going to mute this right now while you answer this part. So here's the big thing about the Omega situation. The implication made by Sinister several times, including in Inferno, is that you can't 1,000% perfectly replicate a mutant's X-gene. And we've seen that in the Krakoa era repeatedly, particularly with the Moira engine that Sinister is building now. He talks about genetic degradation and the way that each clone is a little bit less stable than the last one. And in Judgment Day, AXE, he talks about how no matter how many times he tried to copy Jean Grey, he could never quite create Jean Grey. Madeline is certainly his strongest attempt at doing so to the point that he fooled the Phoenix, but you can't ever 100% get it. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but that's why an Omega level reality warper is required as part of the five on Krakoa to create a perfect duplicate. Human science can't do that. That's why she's not Omega level. Practically speaking, it's because we are now in the Krakoa era limiting the number of characters who are identified as Omega level for the first time because back when Maddie was invented, that wasn't a designation that anyone cared about, right? So a lot of this is fan conversation. I think that Maddie is not an Omega in the same way that Rachel is not an Omega and Charles Xavier is not an Omega and Bessie Braddock is not an Omega, which is to say these are some of the most powerful telepaths on the planet, but they're not Gene. Yes. And I think that's fine. They're not Gene is basically like the rule. That's of all Omegas, it's saying. Right? <laughs> that's why Quentin Quire's, an, I mean, one of many reasons why Quentin Quire's annoying in his existence is that otherwise the designation exists to say, you're very good, you're not Gene. Which is, yes. <laughs> even for Madeline, that's the great struggle. Madeline will never be Gene, and that's all she wants, is to be acknowledged as as important as Gene, and no one will do it. Yes. Yeah, they won't fucking do it. Carlos Ramos wrote, Dear Connor and Sarah, Maddie seems to use her evil magic instead of the power set she shares with Jean. Is this the way she chooses to differentiate herself from her sister? Or is it just a reference to Medea that stuck? Both. Both. The big thing is if she was just doing Jean stuff, which in X-Men, she did just do a lot of Jean stuff. But overall, yes, when she appears, she tends to use the demon magic stuff. That's because Inferno is one of the most iconic X-Men stories, but also because it differentiates her visually from Jean. It's like giving them different haircuts. It's something that immediately identifies her as a different character. And so I think it's more obvious and appealing to writers to use 
use the stuff she can do that Jean can't do. That is the practical reason. And the reason that I like is the fact that Madeline is just a witchy motherfucker. You know? Yeah, she's just witchy. Steven Ferreira writes, finally the moment we've all been waiting for. Maddie, my question is, in X-Men Alpha Flight, Maddie as Anodyne mentioned she got her heart's desire when she got the power of healing from Loki. It appeared as healing flames. Do you think it was her connection to the Phoenix that gave her a desire to use flames to heal? Because the Phoenix spark felt guilty for killing with its flames as Dark Phoenix. The Phoenix was supposed to be the spark of life, not death. Thank you, Connor, for bringing such joy and love for the X-Men to new generations of readers. Antlers drew it. Again, yes, both. Yeah. Right? The anodyne thing, I think, is the best because you have this scenario, like, it's who she begins as because I think we really do see her sunshine and roses, right? Like, you see someone who really wants to help people. I think the phoenix is comfortable with its role as a destroyer. Yes. I think it regrets destroying Dubari because those people were innocent and that yes. was the mistake but I don't think of the phoenix as a healer it heals in the way no. that cauterizing heals like it burns away things that are bad for you but that doesn't yeah. mean that it can stitch you up ruthlessly like that's the point and I think Madeline can heal you in a way that's different and she goes through this like evil arc to be able right. to find healing right like that's what we hope for her to find it again like her heart's desire was to be the healer loki made her as a trick but then she had to go through hell literally to be in a position where she can heal herself sebastian alex over the course of other stories because she's learned magic yes she had to accept the devil to do that yes yeah, she has to kind of see the, the uh, something I always say is, is that if you, you can't love humanity without knowing it, right? And like, you can't love people without knowing what's awful about them. And like the part of loving humanity and loving who you are and loving who everyone around you is, is knowing how shitty we can be, right? Is like, you have to see this. And I think that a big part of Madeline's arc is I see how terrible the Jean Janeer is. I see how terrible Sinister is. Yes. It breaks her. But in many ways, like the best thing that could happen with her is to become like the wounded healer. Right. And I think it all goes back to Anodyne, because if you think about the end yeah. of X-Men Alpha Flight, she is willing to sell her soul to Loki to save her friend Sam Ross when he's dying. Like she is willing to corrupt herself to be of service and to heal. And ultimately you look at her limbo embassy now where she's like, we will help lost souls find their path. Seems like it's coming full circle. Seems like it all came back around and she corrupted herself to become a healer. Yeah. Because it's like the worst things that ever happen to you, like either they completely break you or. Or your skin has turned to porcelain, yeah. to ivory, to steel, you know? Yeah. And like, that's just kind of, I mean, it's not great, but it's the world we live in. And I think it's the world that Madeline has to live in too. 
Ryan West writes, hello, Connor, esteemed guest Sarah Century. Connor, congratulations on such an incredible milestone. I could gush and gush about how amazing this podcast is, how proud you should be of yourself, and how much your work means to so many people. But I'm sure that the length of this episode is going to give the Candy Southern episode a run for its money. You don't know the half of it, brother. So instead, I'll just get right to my questions. One, who do you think that Maddie thinks her friends are? Do you think she counts any of the X-Men as friends? Or does she think of them more as those assholes, the X-Men? Do you think she got close enough to anyone during the Outback era who she'd still consider a friend? Or could she honestly not care less? Storm. Storm is the one who I do feel like she really... They need to talk on panel again. We they haven't, haven't seen it. Not since 1989. But like, I do believe that it would be major. In my absolute soul, I believe that Storm still wishes the best for Maddie. And I believe that Maddie still knows exactly who Aurora is and knows that she will help her if she asks. And I do think that Betsy and Allie and Rogue kind of feel the same way but we may never see it Piotr I think was more offended by the events of Inferno than the others were so and like Longshot loves everybody so he's not really a a matter of of debate and then Havoc of course Havoc is Havoc but as we noted his friendship of Madeline is the basis the underpinning of of everything. everything yeah so my actual curiosity now that i'm listing off all the outback x-men is like i wonder what wolverine thinks of her now wolverine shut up you don't get to have an opinion he doesn't get to have an opinion he doesn't get to have an opinion but i would be curious to hear what it is that's all yes same Two, did Maddie's healing power in X-Man ever get explained? Was it her telekinesis or leftover demonic magic? I remember people online at the time theorizing it was her anodyne abilities coming back, which I kind of liked because it would give her something to further differentiate from Jean. So did this ever get explained? Should I worry about it? Thanks again for everything you do. And until I'm forced to write in and ask you to say three nice things about Firestar, make mine Cerebro. Ryan West, he, him, no longer on the Bird app, but Abracadamit on Instagram. Instagram. Ryan is the listener who wrote in to ask Alex Abbasatis and I to say three nice things about Magma. So I'm glad that he understands his critical role. You have to unmute because you're laughing and you're muted. Who cares what the cat noise makes? The cat is screaming. (laughs) I don't care. It's fine. I'll edit that out in post. Yes, you're right. My my laugh track is essential to this moment. It really is key because otherwise it sounds like I'm talking to myself and bombing. I'm like, oh, the hecklers are going to start any minute. you got to unmute. But anyway. Well, she's going back upstairs, so I think we're good. As for the healing powers, there's nothing you need to, like, worry about. It was presumably just, like, A, leftover magic. B, Nate Gray is the ultimate unlimited mutant. Like, he's Cable without the T.O. virus yeah. holding him back. And this is what he does with it, right? That's what we but need like, to But, like, he created <laughs> Madeline, and she was channeling his power, so you could see it yeah. as reality warping. I choose to believe it's her instinctively doing healing magic because her true heart's desire, even amnesiac, even not knowing entirely who she is. At core, what she wants is to be anodyne, but in a way where she won't be taken advantage of. She doesn't want people to fuck with her anymore, but she wants to be a healer. Yes. And you see that even in those moments where she's, 
in Hellions, she's holding Havoc's face and she fixes him up and says, that's better. Right before Grey Crow kills her. Yeah. The moment that makes us so sympathetic is she paused because she's been giving a whole villain monologue like, I drove you crazy and I'm thrilled. And then she's like, wait, oh, oh, like, wait, your face. Like... Actually, wait, you're really fucked. Honey, are you OK? Yeah. Oh, shit. And then she gets shot through the heart. Yep. Because it's always in that moment that she cares. It's always in that moment of service, of healing, that she suffers most. Yeah, and she's going to have to learn to balance that. But guess what? I'm here for that journey. I'm here for it. I want to read the journey. <laughs> Lucas Siobal writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. Big fan of any episodes you two do together. Two questions. I just finished reading Inferno for the first time and something caught my eye that shakes up the Gene Phoenix dyad. Madeline says, your ambition is to rule the world. In one stroke, I make it ashes. I abjure life, father, and give myself over whole and unreservedly to the fire, an inferno that will consume all. This places Madeline firmly into the fire and vengeance side of fire and life incarnate. Also, the fire used to ignite an inferno... That's pretty good writing, Chris Claremont. This coupled with the reveal that Madeline's first words when she woke up were the last words Phoenix screamed on the moon begs the question of if Madeline could or should be able to host the Phoenix. Since they don't seem to want to have Jean be Phoenix, and after Dark Web X-Men number three repaired Madeline and Jean's relationship, Madeline seems to me to be the prime candidate to defeat the Dominion that's going to swallow all of Krakoa. She could be the avenging Dark Phoenix without having to give that title and baggage to Jean. Thoughts? Thank you both again for great and thoughtful episodes. You've given me so much context as I've been reading all of the X-Men books for the first time, and the Jean episode really established for me that Jean Grey is one of the most fascinating comics characters ever created. Truly, you both cannot be thanked enough. Here's to 100 more episodes of Cerebro, now and forever. I think Madeline is capable of hosting the Phoenix Force, but I think that she would be something of a flawed vessel in a way that Jean is not. Sure. And... I think that it's for the best that she not do that for her. Well, something we barely touched on, right, was the part where Sinister has like the, all of the extra Madelines that run around, and he's that's true. Like so during Avengers versus X Men, when Sinister is trying to trap the Phoenix Force that's been split into pieces, he yeah. clones a bunch of Gene clones and calls them his Madelines, and there's Which like five like, of you six of them. Weirdo. And I'm like, I fucking hate this dude. And it's yeah. Kieran Gillen just like making him so loads. And he's like, oh, look at all these Madelines, and I'm like fuck you they have no thoughts like they're not it's like that's why when people were stressed about the moira clones and the moira engine i'm like i'm pretty confident they don't have higher brain functions yes. because like sinister can make clones without that and isn't it fascinating that he calls them madeleines and not jeans right like there's just something totally but wild that's what kieran this. just did in judgment day his yeah. like sinister's feeling is no matter how hard he tries he can't seem to replicate gene yes it's always a Madeline. And yes. I think that's fucked up because it's never quite like those six Madelines that burned up in AVX, not as powerful clearly as the original Madeline. As Madeline. Because every time he does the clone, I think it's less powerful, right? And to him, every time Madeline rebels, he's like, oh, I messed up. And it's just like. The first time he's like, wow, you were always such a rebel, Madeline. I'm like, what do you even mean? She was in a test tube. How rebellious could she have possibly? 
possibly been. And I believe that she just. But I believe that she was. I believe that he was like, we're going to train you now to use your like, I'm going to test you on facts about Charles Xavier. And she was like, fuck you, dad. Yes. I, well, we talked in the (laughs) Rachel episode, right? About how we were like, well, Rachel's obviously like the person who should have had Phoenix. We don't think that necessarily is ever going to happen now. Right. It's like, that was the story. We didn't get a chance to talk about this because it's been, you haven't been on the show since the Ascani thing happened, but I think that what Teeny has done that's so brilliant is letting the title Ascani be something specific to Rachel that also allows Rachel to use psionic fire in a way that evokes her iconic power signature without requiring that she in the franchise be the host of the phoenix force is how you fix rachel as a character i mean in addition to making her a fucking lesbian but like you know those two things are how you fix rachel as a character yes whereas with the uh phoenix force is a absolute dick bag there's so much baggage at this point so many stories whenever the phoenix shows up it's like the fascination that the phoenix specifically has for gene as many other people have possessed the phoenix force you're never gonna compare it's like scott there's no interest with madeline and like we yes. saw that right because like the phoenix was like uh like Oops, no my mistake the second madeline's dead it's like apologizing I to Jean no harm. that it confused <laughs> madeline for her yeah. you know Yeah, doesn't have an interest in Madeline. So much like I'm happier for Rachel to have her be a Scani and not worry about her being Phoenix too. I don't want Madeline. Like, I think the worst thing you could do for Madeline would be to tie her more closely to Jean's branding. And as Trinity says, death is all around you. Very different than the Phoenix. It's like, I think that Madeline and death and being As above, and, so below. I think yes. that Madeline is the Ereshkigal to Jean Zinana. You know, like, yes. I think that there are that. It's like, what's that poem? Diana in the Levis Green. Oh, yeah. Luna where the light doth sheen, Persephone in hell. It's that. Yes, yes, exactly. John Skelton. It's a John Skelton poem. Skelton, okay. Good stuff. Yeah. I was like, let me search that because I don't want to get his name wrong. So if you're listening and I didn't take a moment to Google that, now you know the secret. (laughs) I was just like, I know that off the top of my head. And do you know why? Actually, back in the day on Tumblr, I made a Pixbam graphic from Battlestar Galactica with eight, six, and three using that poem. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i know you now i just saw like a part of you unfolding diana and the Levis green luna where the light does sheen persephone the poem is like famous right but oh it's a famous poem but i'm just saying it occurred to me immediately because i once made yeah. a Ballastar galactica pick spam yes nice <laughs> Keisha writes, congrats on reaching 100 episodes. This is still my favorite podcast. It's really enriched my reading and understanding of a franchise I was already crazy about. I'm strapped in for the next 100. Anyway, I have a shameful confession. I was a longtime Madeline hater. Maybe it was partly born from being a big fan of Cyclops, as well as a big fan of Cyclops and Jean together, or partly from just not reading that many comics with her in them. Either way, I've spent most of my life only knowing her as the clone of Jean who married Scott, gave birth to Cable, and went crazy. And that wasn't even factoring in 
explain all the weird Nate Gray incest stuff, which I only recently learned about. Not a great look, Maddie. But since listening to the pod and hearing many a tangent from you about Maddie, I've really come around on her. You truly are the lead Madeline Pryor defense attorney, and you're doing a damn fine job. I finally started seeing her as not just a plot device, but a rich and unique character in her own right, divorced from Gene and Scott. However, I think what's put me firmly in the Maddie was right camp was becoming a mother myself. I'm seven months into this big life step, and I empathize more with Maddie each day, up to and including the sacrificing my child to demons part. Joking, but my baby, Betsy, is teething right now, and it's a lot. I too have transformed into a goblin queen, but my version involves less torn capes and underboob and more sweatpants and spit-up stained shirts. Seriously, though, knowing what I know now, it actually gives me a very different view on Maddie's journey through Inferno. From the conflicting emotions of both love and resentment for your baby, down to feeling like a broodmare, and especially having a loss of your sense of self, it's kind of easy to read Inferno as postpartum depression or psychosis, but make it a superhero story would love to hear your thoughts on that it was hard to come up with an actual question for this episode both because i'm very distracted a lot of the time lately but also because i feel like most things connor would fall under your i have a maddie pitch i'd like to pitch someday blanket but do you think madeline could ever be a fully heroic character if gene got a pass after eating all that cosmic broccoli i think it should be fine to look the other way on deals with the devil i mean amara fucked the guy and that's not even her worst offense <laughs> point <laughs> i think maddie absolutely is capable of being a heroic character but i think she would, is at her best in an anti-hero space like I punisher or electra consider herself to be a heroic character. right and so that's the key you know yeah. a lot of my maddie pitch if i got to write the character i would want her to be in that space of like the ex-villain atoning in a specific way that's not pious but is just sort of like i'll never be good but i'm trying to do the right thing you know mm -hmm. yeah and i think i've brought up like the postpartum depression thing a couple of times that's what i was gonna say is like that is we haven't really talked about that this episode but i think that's absolutely interwoven into the text of inferno is the idea that like she gave birth alone on the kitchen floor and then everything that happened to her after the birth was traumatic and at a certain point she's just like i hate this thing and at the point of like Scott really does just leave her and it's he like, leaves yeah, her alone sure, with the baby he comes back or like whatever. But that doesn't really matter because he leaves her and like sh the implication that line that he says in X-Men number 201 where he's just <sighs> like, I thought being a mother changed all that whenever he's trying to leave. Right. And you're just like you scumbag but that's something that women deal with all of the time that's something that people with uteruses deal with all of the time right and so this idea of postpartum depression kind of ruling this i don't think that it's dealt with it sympathetically by any stretch of the imagination but at the same time i don't think that she's villainized necessarily for the most part throughout even inferno like even the moments I think she is like even when Jean is calling out the fact that it's unnatural and wrong yes. for a mother to harm her child, Jean still reaches out with pity. Yeah. And I do think it's true that Jean's extension of a hand to Madeline in Inferno is out of pity yeah. rather than empathy. Yes. I also think that once Jean understands Madeline to be a part of herself, 
that's the moment she starts to feel sympathy for Madeline. And that's yeah. what I find so offensive about Jean in Inferno. And even before Inferno, she's so nasty about Madeline's sacrifice of her life in Fall of the Mutants. She's so nasty about Madeline until the moment that she understands that Madeline was born from her. And then suddenly she wants to help. Right. And in that way, Jean is the not mom who's judging single moms, right? Or something like there's yeah. kind of this like metatextual commentary. With the added thing of like, you're kind of my child. Yes, exactly. It's patronizing. Yes. And it's way more complicated, like with these two than it probably oh, is. Oh, for most sure. In ever, in any real life situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think that there is something interesting saying that, like, you know, you didn't see Madeline as a person. I look back at Inferno and I go, a lot of us look at Madeline as being the hero of that story. And I think also it would be very easy to look at Madeline as just being kind of a mustache twirling villain. And lots of people do. Like, yeah. I would say I, particularly like the people who are like, wait, you've turned me around on Madeline. A lot of them, I would say, are straight men yeah. in my experience. And that's not to generalize or criticize. But I do think that it's very easy for that reader to identify with Scott. Sure. In this yeah. situation and to be like, oh, my God, he made a mistake, but this bitch is crazy, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and then to take a second and step outside of it. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that, as Keisha says, being a mother herself makes her suddenly much more conscious of the stresses that that would put on this fictional woman, sure, which are mostly not depicted on panel. Yeah. Leandra Matthew writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. I'm so glad you guys are back together for an episode because the first one I ever listened to was Candy Southern. I hadn't thought about the X-Men since middle school at that point, but the TikToks were so funny, I had to hear more. The Candy episode was such a joy, I've been hooked ever since, except for a part right in the middle of that episode where Connor mentioned Terry Long from Teen Titans, and I was violently <laughs> reminded that that crusty, chia pet-looking man existed. It was a jump scare. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. I do Fuck regret... <laughs> Bringing that moment to the forefront of your Get brain. him out of here. Anyway, my question is, do you think Sinister went through the trouble of making Madeline so fashionable on purpose? Years ago, I saw a Tumblr post that was like, the canon way to tell Jean and Maddie apart is that if she's wearing something cute, it's Maddie. If she's wearing a fugly beige sweater, it's Jean. <laughs> what I'm wondering is if that's because Maddie, through sheer force of will, developed the ability to serve cunt all on her own or if Sinister saw this as an opportunity to finally put that fashion design minor to good use he's such a control freak that I could 100% see him making everyone stop at Coles in the middle of his diabolical plan but I'm stumped as to whether Maddie woke up opened her closet and was like I must have been absolutely plastered when I bought this shit I make $15 an hour and I spent it on garbage or if Sinister has had a secret passion for fashion all along I would love to hear what you guys think lots of love and support Built for Space on Twitter. P.S. This whole thing started with my mental tangent about Sinister walking through Ikea trying to decide which futon would make Scott Summers the horniest. Because <laughs> he's a futon guy. We know that for well, sure. Well, he presumably <laughs> bought the decor for Madeline's Alaska Chalet. No kidding. I'm going to say that this comment is a uh, backless black dress jean erasure because that is the most iconic look of them all. And if anything, Madeline takes huge inspiration from that throughout the whole Goblin Queen era. But I would argue. Yes. 
I don't quite agree with Chris that Madeline was the part of Jean that loved Scott, but I do believe that Madeline got certain traits from Jean that Jean then kind of psychically lost because they were astral twins. And I do believe that Maddie got all the fashion sense. This because is how Jean, you're going to explain the Jim Lee era. Jean <laughs> looks like shit. <laughs> From the moment she resurrects, like she looks great in that X Factor uniform, the way Walt Simonson yeah. draws it. But otherwise, yeah. she never has a fashion moment again until 1994. Like, when do they get married? Oh, God. Everything yeah, between those like moments her. is heinous. <laughs> and I have to say, too, that, like, as much as I'm like, fuck Sinister, he doesn't actually, like, play a role in her life. He dressed her up cute, though, and he gave her that blowout with the bang. He did a little bit. The underboob look with like the shoulder pads compared to it's like a mix of sinister and the backless number of Jean Grey, right? Like that's very true. The thing about the underboob look that I love the most though is that it's like not from Sinister. Yes. Sinister's weirded out that she shows up as the Goblin yes. Queen because that's an outfit that Sim and Nastir gave her. And it's like this weird combination of looks between these. It's two. It's like a corrupted Jean slash Sinister hybrid. It's super cool yes i love it i think that like the underboob has been so criticized which is evil and wrong free the undertit as far as i'm concerned it's like the minute that havoc walked in and it you're just like here we are now it's We're fine good. everything's yeah. fine any argument that anybody had about it <laughs> as long as we expose as much luscious male titty as this luscious female titty that's it i'm like listen because everybody was always down on diana troy for wearing cleavage shirts and i'm just like as a strong proponent i believe in cleavage shirts okay so don't take that away from me just like put Riker in a crop top put also Riker also in a cleavage shirt and we're good and and yeah. like that's if nobody else havoc has been a long time supporter of equal <laughs> equal city <laughs> region exposure for between all genders very true <laughs> he's in his underwear for his entire first issue practically he sure so. is Gustavo Moreira writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. I'm a big fan of the show. Knowing you made me an even bigger X-Men fan. Thank you for all your work. Because of you, I became a fan of Maddie. I loved her introduction, her relationship with Scott while it lasted, and her tragedy in Inferno. My question is, do you think she and Scott could or should have a talk to make amends? I don't want them to be friends exactly, but Scott is my favorite Marvel character, and I just want a closure for their relationship and for both of them to move on. He can't. He'll never be able to, right? Like I don't think he ever truly can. I think that they, after Dark Web, will be, like, cool. Yeah. But I think it's always going to be awkward. I don't think that Scott was able to open up to her when they were married. So I yeah, don't like, see why he'd be able to I do it now. I can't see him doing it now. I think it would have to be, like, some kind of crisis where they get forced into a telepathic sigh rapport or whatever. Because otherwise, it just wouldn't happen. As much as... Every other person is like seeing Madeline as being this complicated character of her own right. I don't think that Scott is actually capable of seeing her in that. No, light. I think he I just has don't think to he believe that she's that not. she is a complete. If not, then he would have to be like, I actually like loved this person. Right. And he I has to pity her and Alex. I don't think he can survive any other way. Otherwise, it's X Men the end. <laughs> They have to be beneath him and Gene. Like, it's just yeah. something that he does feel. Yeah. 
He'll get past it maybe someday, but it won't maybe, be but anywhere, not right now. Nowhere near today. And it's not one of his better qualities, but it's just a fact. And I like Scott at this point, but like it's a thing. It's yeah, he couldn't thing. talk to her when they were together. That's what we know, you know. Joseph Hellebush writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. I'm a longtime flat scan listener of the podcast and absolutely love all the insights and perspectives that Cerebro gives me. I feel like I can appreciate even old X-Men stories that I've read even better and rereads have become a delight. My somewhat Madeline Pryor related question is this. What age is it okay to read Inferno, do you think? I know from listening that you read it in a young age and it made a big impression. I'd left my omnibus out on our coffee table, a mistake, and my three-year-old opened it and said, this looks cool. I had to say, it is, but it is for older readers, <laughs> which got me thinking, <laughs> how old is older? Should I let her read it at 13, 14? Of course, it depends on every child individually, of course, but wonder if you had any thoughts on a general age. Until Zaladane rules over the sun people once again, make mine Cerebro, Joe. Hopefully long after she rules over the sun people again, because if I get to pitch one story for Marvel and it doesn't feature Zaladane, I know you're all going to rise up against my castle with torches and pitchforks. So I just got to do that at some point, right? If I ever get yes. the chance. I mean, at the very God. least, a shout out, just like, yeah. oh, yeah, and Zaladin's up to no good in the Savage Land. And everybody's <laughs> like, wait, that character's alive? And I'm like, for years now, who cares? Yeah, Don't worry about around. it. Don't worry. To answer your question. Um, neither of us have kids. <laughs> yeah, I don't have kids. And I'm not a good judge of, like, parenting because I have no children and do not intend to have any. However... I will say, I think my reading it at 12 was really good for me. Like, I was just adult enough to understand what was going on, and I was young enough that it really captured my imagination. So, I, I like, I don't think anything in it was inappropriate for me to read. Like, it's PG-13, basically, yes. is what I would say. I can tell you that the first nightmares I remember having are of Hellraiser 2 and I <laughs> was way too young whatever my age was I don't remember watching the movie I just remember having nightmares of Hellraiser 2 and the skinless Julia and like all yeah of this not ideal I, mean, I I consider myself to be a fairly troubled human being as an adult <laughs> so I can't tell you if that is because of the art that I consumed as a child, which I actually right. think gave me tools to cope. With I actually think that helped based on like is. what I know of you. I think yes. that the, the like coping with scary art helped you process whatever. So. It seems like it. So I yeah. can't I can't say what to do with your child. I can say that if a child runs towards an inferno collection and is just like, this is rad, I don't know what I would say other than yes. Here's <laughs> sure what I is. would say. Cerebro is not liable for any parenting advice <laughs> that we dispense in this podcast. But I would say, like, I think 12 or 13 is fine. I think it's, like, basically sure. a PG-13 movie. Sure. It has, like, adult themes, but there's nothing, like, overly graphic in it that yeah. would... Like, it's... Even the deaths are always, like, off-panel, you know? Yes. Like, it's very... It's discreet that way. Yes. So, I think it's honestly a good way for, like, young people, young adults, as the category was once defined, 
to start to think about deeper moral questions and like maybe themes of like violence and sexuality in a way that is actually not that graphic and not that intense. Meanwhile, in the there's plenty of scheme. other books that you could just like instead be like there's that have this book instead there's a lot of stuff that i think would be more traumatic than inferno for a kid oh, to of read course. is i guess what i would say yeah x-men x-men Hey everybody, we're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this mobile squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War in the real-time arena. Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I for one can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. Emma B. writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest, I'm from Texas, so please feel free to do your best Matthew McConaughey or Tommy Lee Jones impression. <laughs> My Texas at this point is Kelly McGonagall Finglass from Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders Making the Team, the show <laughs> that I have seen every episode of twice because it is the best office background noise i can imagine and i bought a year membership to paramount plus so i might as well watch it two times anyway emma continues as a diehard dc girly i'm new to the x-men and have been using your pod as a way to break into the comics and also go feral over all the lore i've been making my way through the episodes after starting with our queen candy southern so i feel like i've come full circle having sarah as the guest this week hello before the pod, I always loved the X-Men from the Wolverine show. I nearly choked to death after rewatching recently and seeing Magma as a character with zero lines who's then quickly thrown off screen where, honestly, she belongs. So thanks for that. But I never talked about X-Men as a kid because comics or nerdy stuff wasn't for girls. <laughs> so I've loved finding a little community that embraces it, especially an amazing place for feminist and queer discussion of a male-dominated genre. Still learning everything X-Men, but here's my question. I've noticed with Madeline that there's a pattern with the idea of maternal rage that's come up a lot recently in pop <laughs> culture. As someone who loves A Song of Ice and Fire, I know, Connor, this is not in A Song of Ice and Fire podcast, I've had my takes on The House of the Dragon, but it's teeing up this idea. For instance, with X-Men, there seem to be a lot of women that show different kinds and levels of this concept. 
I was really gutted hearing about another redheaded ex-lady who loses her child in one of the cruelest ways and then had to watch as the father established another family with a different woman, barely acknowledging the previous mother of his child. I'm speaking of Siren. The parallel she plays against Maddie is interesting in how they both respond to that loss. There is also, I think, the concept of who's real in that context as Siren's baby was a dupe and Maddie is a clone. So long story short, I wanted to know what y'all's thoughts were on how the parallels between these two powerful women who were misused and then left with their grief could be explored in the future. Does it work as a foil to Mystique, who has so much agency and yet chose to abandon or kill her children? Thanks and love everything you do. It's been a real joy to hear how passionate everyone is over something I used to be afraid to openly like as a kid. I would recommend this to pass me, but I think hearing the phrase cock destroyers 12 times in the ladies mastermind episode would have melted my little brain. Thanks, <laughs> Emma. Unfortunately, not Frost. P.S. A side story that might make you laugh. In college, I was walking early to an exam and I saw Michael Fassbender and Alicia Vikander. I I just kept staring at him because I couldn't figure out how I knew him as we walked toward one another on the street. And I got so flustered, I fully body checked him. I literally <laughs> slammed into him. I had my headphones in and didn't know what to do. So I just kept walking and screamed, I'm sorry, as I ran off. And he waved and said, all good. Very nice of him. So to this day, my friends call it the time I beat up Magneto. Can't wait to accidentally headbutt James Mack and complete the set emma that's an enormously <laughs> charming letter thank you for oh waiting my god. in oh my god um where to begin like uh, i think everything. the siren comparison you make is really salient and i'm actually struck by the synergy i'm talking about it like it's multimedia synergy but like no just like the the synchronicity psychically keisha who wrote in earlier also yeah. wrote into the siren episode and in that episode, she was generous enough to share with us that the siren story was really difficult for her as someone who had experienced miscarriage. For her to write in now and say that after she carried a child to term, she has a lot of sympathy for Maddie. I think you're seeing essentially two stages of the same arc potentially in a woman's life, right? Mm -hmm. There are different times at which you could lose a child. And they're differently traumatic, but similarly traumatic. Yeah. You're asking us what we think. And it's almost like I want to ask you what you think about it. Because I know that, you know, neither of us have kids. But Right. But you're right to bring it up. It's an obvious yeah. parallel, you know? It's an obvious parallel. And I wanted to say, too, is that I remember talking to my grandma, who I have the utmost respect for, whenever I was a little girl. And we were talking about postpartum depression essentially I didn't know that's what we were talking about because we were talking about a woman who very similarly did what Madeline attempts to do right like uh, a bad situation where a mom inflicts violence upon a child and the story was basically me just being like I don't understand how somebody could do that and my grandma saying you don't understand 
straight up like period you don't understand you don't get it and you won't get it until this feeling happens to you yes and it makes me feel like a conversation between madeline and siren i mean that's would not be the fascinating. only thing that they have in common right because there's uh demons and there's demonic and possession by eldritch <laughs> entities and yeah all kinds of shit so and also the siren episode rules like like, that's a great episode. So That's a great episode, right? I got to get Valentine back on the pod for season four. You do. You do. I let I sport the Candy Southern shirt all of the time. Oh, my God. I know. And if you're listening, it might not be out yet, but there is a Madeline Pryor merch piece coming to go with this episode. So. All right. Another one for my collection. If it isn't out yet, it's coming. And last week, probably at the time you're hearing this. We released a new Cerebro and Valentine M. Smith design since time immemorial featuring Celine. Celine. So go get your Celine merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Cerebro. Yes. Anyway, yeah, no, there's Maddie. There's Maddie merch coming as well. I think it'll be out. I'm trying to time. There's so many things I'm trying to sync up with the 100th episode. And it's like planning a wedding at this point. I'm like, not everything's going to sync up. We're doing our best, you know? No, but Emma, that was an incredible, incredible. Great letter. Great letter. Kyaton Klein writes, greetings, Connor and lovely guest. How you going? I, I can't possibly do Kyaton's accent, actually. It's so beautiful, but I'm going to just do an Australian general accent. <laughs> Writing in to discuss my own guilted problematic fave, Maddie, because I cannot resist and I've never been so thrilled to see her back in action. But I found myself at a strange, dissatisfied crossroads somewhat regarding something that's been bothering me for a while. Why does it writers seem so eager to cast Jean and Madeline as sisters when the dynamic in the original Inferno was just so damn parasitic? I don't mean that I never want them to come to amends, but as someone who was born a twin, there's a certain caustic resonance between Madeline and Jean that feels anathematic to sisterhood during the fall of the mutants. It continues into Inferno, which I've never been able to let go of. Maybe I'm just bitter? But Jean's ready willingness to dismiss the personhood of Maddie, a woman who suffered so much at no fault of her own, by claiming her as an aspect of herself, felt so self-centered and disingenuous that I've struggled to really like Jean ever since. Things only ever seem to matter to Jean when they're in relation to herself or her experiences, whereas Maddie always has been so giving and selfless as a person that she's just indelibly distinct in my mind from Jean. It's always bothered me that Jean has never apologized for being complicit in Maddie's erasure. Her concern for her has always seemed pitying rather than empathetic. And I know Krakow is about new beginnings, but it's so hard to see Jean slide into a matronly sister role when she spent decades willfully denying Madeline personhood at a very basic level. Am I alone in feeling there's something missing in the resolution, or resolution so far, of Maddie and Jean's art together? Or is there something you'd like to see direction-wise, not specific, save your brilliant ideas to shoot your shot one day, Connor, but generally, that's been left out in this modern resurrection of Maddie? Or, as is likely, am I just too much of a sensitive Maddie stan and being bitter? As always, adore the show and will be here till our lady and saviour Candy has her moment again. Love, Kate and Klein, standing Maddie forever. This is a you question, I think, because it's like, it's so geared towards some of the things that you've brought up through this, right? I like Maddie and Gina's sisters, but not because I think Jean deserves to be Maddie's sister or that it's a natural thing for them or any of that. 
I'm the eldest sibling. Same. Sarah's older than Jean, so there's the Sarah question of it all. But looking at Jean and Madeline specifically, I think that Jean, and this is me, again, she's a Pisces, that's canonical, so that makes me like reflect upon Jean as though she's more like me than I want to admit, <laughs> right? I think that Jean feels a responsibility for Madeline, and I think that over time, she did really come to see Madeline as a person. Like, I agree that the things she says in Inferno are hateful, particularly all the way back to Follow the Mutants. Like, the things she says are hateful. And then in Inferno, when she finally acknowledges Maddie as a person because she realizes Maddie is connected to her somehow, infuriates Offensive. me. Yeah. Yeah. But if you haven't read the X-Man stuff or the Cable stuff that we read earlier, that I think is the critical midpoint. Yeah, that's like the bridge. Because that happens and then Gene is dead after new X-Men for like a long time. Yeah. And I think it's now natural for them both to be back and each to be skeptical of the other. But for Gene to, after those growth moments in the 90s of acknowledging this woman as a real person, be like, well, I didn't ask for you, but you're my sister, is very similar to the way Gene now regards Rachel, who she initially rejected, where she was like, I rebuke this. And now she's like, well, I didn't ask for you, but I'm your mom, even if I'm not quite. And it's weird and fucked up, but I'm going to do my best. And I think that with Madeline, she's also saying, I'm going to do my best. And by the end of Dark Web, I bought it. Yeah. I mean, I still think they have a lot of issues, but lots of siblings have issues. And I bought the connection that Jean was reaching out and saying, we can have this. I felt it establish. And I think that writers can now write them as sisters where Maddie is the slightly younger upstart sister and they have tension in a way that will be really fun. And Jean, if nothing else, we have seen a very long history of Jean being able to eventually reach, reach out to people on an empathy. Yeah, she level, takes right? her time, but she does takes get Takes a there. minute, but like she has been able to get over a lot of shit that people have done to her. And honestly, like, you know, she forgave Mastermind. That's a different scenario by a very long stretch, but... But I think Jean forgiving Mastermind and forgiving Emma... Yes, that was what I was going to lead into next. Those are two really indicative things. Is like Those are the characters who did the worst thing to Jean that's ever happened to Jean. Yeah. And she's able to forgive them. Not just Emma, who was like complicit, but she's able to forgive Mastermind, who one could argue is her rapist. Jean is someone with a lot of ability to forgive. Yes. Yeah, whatever her flaws are, right? Which is like many. <laughs> we right. know that like, there's What many. she's not good at is apologizing. And in yeah. this case where they've each been wronged, that's the tricky thing. Yeah. But I think that what Dark Web did that was so clever on Jerry and then Zeb's part was having Jean be the one to reach out and say in a way that's not, I'm sorry, I recognize you and understand that I was wrong. Yes saying your family, saying you deserve these memories, the things that she says, they're not apologies, but they are. Yeah, and they're like, look, I'll 
take you, you know, like I will. And she also pops Maddie in the mouth, which yeah. is like one of the most sibling moments you could we're have here in a comic book. together. Like where it's like, that's how I feel a lot of times if I, because I feel very forgiving towards people too, but and also similarly terrible at forgiving people or uh, at apologizing. Mm-hmm. And like the way that that pans out is it's just like, yeah, but I really will forgive you for like anything. <laughs> See, but so like there's two kinds of people because I think I'm very good at owning up when I've made a mistake and apologizing. I'm not great at forgiving people. Yeah. And I think that that is like you're identifying a seesaw that is real. I think like those are two poles in some it's way like, that had never quite occurred Maddie, to me before. I'm the gene. For it's having almost a like <laughs> I know. <laughs> Robin Moffat writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. Greetings from Scotland. My question pertains to the relationship Maddie has with Jane, and by extension, Jane has with Rachel, Hope, and even the Phoenix itself. In Marvel Comics, we often see characters take up the mantle of a previous hero or alternate universe versions of each other, but Jane in particular seems to inspire a lot of red-headed mutants. I'm curious about why this is, and specifically why these characters maintain longevity in the 616 universe. Perhaps only Logan has more direct foils in the world of X. Is it perhaps that Jane is too tied up in brand image so writers explore her through others? Maddie is, what if Jane was bad? Rachel is, what if Jane was gay? Hope is, <laughs> what if Jane was her own son's daughter? Etc. I think it's a shame that each of these characters is often sat in Jane's shadow, but none more than Maddie. I'm really glad to see them all having their own moments in the Krakoan era, and I really hope they all continue to be more than just types of Jane. I'm really curious to hear what you both think about this and how Maddie in particular can maintain a distinct sense of self without being pigeonholed into evil sorceress Jean. P.S. Thank you, Sarah, for educating me and no doubt many others on the actual existence of scissoring in the lesbian community some <laughs> episodes back. Kind regards, Robin Moffat, she, her. <laughs> no, listen, people have argued with me and I'm going to say this ever since you real. said that, but like, you're not the first lesbian <laughs> to say this to me. Yeah. Because you're like, sometimes like, it's real. Not as much like, as you would think, but it can be that? real. And then it's just like, no, like I assure you it is simply fucking. Like, I, sometimes I just, you do that. I assure you. Listen, it's logical. <laughs> it's also logical that it would be the thing that men think of first. Right. So like, I get the stereotype, but it's also yes. like, why wouldn't you a little yes. bit? Because like the men, you know what? We don't it's need a to. Long story. Just, this it's is a- one for the Patreon. <laughs> we'll get into this in the Moon Dragon episode that we do one day on the Patreon. This is a, okay. This is fodder for the Moon Dragon episode for sure. Because if there's anybody who is on my, you side think with Marlo this- Chandler was not scissor drunk on Moon Dragon? I assure you, she was. Okay, I'm fucking dying. All right, so like. Okay, the- so well, to go back. I think there's a very simple answer to this question, which is that Jean Grey keeps dying and then being dead for yes. a long time, which and is unusual in a comic Jean book. Things. And people want to do a Jean thing, so they make up a character who can be Jean. But it keeps not being that, right? It keeps not being Jean, because if you have them existing in a space where they're not Jean, every other character is going to look at them and be like, well, but you're not Jean. Not That's going to give them a complex, and then they're uh, going to have their own personality. Yes. Madeline and Rachel are both 
Claremont telling Jean stories in a different way. Yes. And then Hope, I believe, and like I'll never know this until I get, I don't even know who on the, like I'll have to get someone in the room and be like, talk to me, tell me the truth. <laughs> but like, I think Hope in Messiah Complex was originally supposed to be Jean. I think so too. And like Mike Carey was like, I can't remember. And I'm like, I believe that you can't remember because you've been really busy for the last like 50. But someone remembers. I do. Like there's notes. You look into her eyes and you see the phoenix. That's Jean. That's Jean. And she's like the reborn. That's she's the first mutant born after them. You're doing a Jean thing. I'm glad in the long run that hope isn't. Yes. But I think that that's what that story was in the same way that Madeline was a character that Claremont created and said she could be Jean if editorial lets me do it. But I'm leaving it open ended. Yes. That's what hope is also. Even young Jean isn't the same as Jean. Like this is the thing. Jean is a very unique character much as sinister could not replicate her none of these other people can replicate she really her. can't be replicated yeah that's what frustrates it's why i tease the jarbs because what frustrates me about some of the discourse around gene online is that like oh my god what makes gene one of the most captivating characters in fiction is her complexity and that she's a yes. fucking bitch sometimes yes like, just let her be messy like she doesn't have to outsell all the other girlies she's a fictional character let her suck sometimes it's fine it's way better it's way better if you just look at somebody whose self-righteousness sometimes blinds them to the truth like it's just simply a better story it's how i am it's how we all are it's like Jean is the person who sometimes she's so good that sometimes she's so fully up her own ass that she cannot see the outside of it. And like, that's who we all are. Like whenever you said something, I believe in the Jean episode where you said, well, Jean, get off the goddamn cross. Get off the cross. My mother says that. <laughs> it was truly like, it was a moment that really resounded with me because I say it to myself now too, where I'm just like, Sarah, get off the cross. Like, get you don't off the have cross. Like, this. it's like, not that serious. Yeah, like you can, <laughs> to an extent, we're all on that cross, right? I but think like, that actually comes through my grandmother, Carol. I think she was just like, would you get off the cross? <laughs> don't be a martyr. And it's <laughs> yeah, just like, like <laughs> yeah, don't be a martyr. Because like, but but that's the thing is Jean does want to get off the cross. Jean does not want to be a martyr. Like that's right. like, the, that's like her, her. But at the same time, she's constantly being like, well, I've suffered so world. much for all of you. Yes. So yeah, it's tough. And that's, that's what's cool thing, about Jean. That's what's cool the about contradiction. Jean. Lean into it. It's okay if your fave is a messy bitch who lives for drama. My favorite characters are Betsy and Emma. They're horrible. Yes. Every like person, <laughs> whenever like the, the Phoenix thing is happening, like whenever Jean is like, they go, oh, well, we have these options, but like, it looks like we're all going to crash into the Earth's atmosphere and die. And she goes, we're fucking not going to do that. Actually, no. Everything. And I then, disagree. Like, Scott starts to yell at her and she's like, and she's yep. like, nope. Shut the Absolutely fuck up. Absolutely not. Not your story, Scott. That's Don't give thing. a shit what like, you think. There's a wonderful side to this where you just go, and I feel the same about myself. There's a That's wonderful side. That's why she's a side. feminist icon. Wait, 
She was the first female superhero ever to behave that way. And she's like, I'm going to Because Claremont do this. Storm doesn't quite crystallize into that until the 80s. A little bit later. After Dark Phoenix. Yep. That's the thing is, is like, you look at this character who really does martyrize herself. Like, yeah. Quite she martyrs herself on the altar of like, women should be allowed to be powerful. And guess yes. what? It's taken decades for a woman in a superhero comic to be allowed to be that powerful ever yes. again. Yes. Yes. Chuck Marsh writes, hello, Connor and Sarah. Deepest and sincerest congratulations to you, Connor, for reaching this point in your podcast history. I'm so glad I was one of the early adopters of Cerebro, starting back in the Beast episode. And I've been able to evangelize the podcast as one where very funny, very smart people talk deeply and critically about a franchise I love. Yes. Every one of your guests by the end of the podcast, I think, is the best, smartest, funniest person I wish I was cool enough to have in my social circle. I've loved every episode. I love the more NPR episodes. I love the passion, deep character love episodes. Episodes. I love when the podcast gets, as you say it, weird. And I love when you're <laughs> dancing the spiral doing who knows what. Every episode's made me laugh a lot as I listen while I drive across the country for work. Every character, no matter how small, is treated with the respect of the franchise headliners. Shout out to the Toad episode. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and what I appreciate most is that you've created a community where people are excited about the comics and excited to be excited about them. Here's to 100 more and 100 after that until we're looping back to do episodes in a decade's time where you and your guests are talking about the personal takes you've since put on the characters. Also, to the mods who are screening this email account, I want to extend a thanks for the job you guys do to help keep the Discord a place I rush to every Wednesday to be with people excitedly reading through these pages every week or when some big news drops. Shout out to the mod team. They are truly the best in the world. Yeah. Congrats on episode 100 and here's to 200. Early in the life of the podcast, Connor, you dropped a concept picture of Maddie in or around the Outback era where Claremont was looking at taking her into the field as a human ally of the X-Men in a more Misty Knight or Colleen Wings sort of way as opposed to the woman at the monitors. I don't know the full history of this and if it was dashed editorially in favor of Inferno, but it's the heart of my question. If this doesn't get too close to talking about plots you might want to pitch one day, what do you think would be the impact of that path for Maddie if it was taken over the Goblin Queen route? Do you think she would have been able to stay a prominent part of the franchise or even possibly spin off into the wider Marvel universe? And if you feel like talking about it, what ripple effects do you think her existing as Maddie Pryor, here's my second act as a gunslinger, would have had on X plots? Thank you for your time. And once again, congratulations on 100 episodes, Chuck Marsh. So that's the concept that Chris Arendt identified as by Silvestri, but that as I mentioned earlier in the episode, right. was actually by someone else who was not an official artist for Marvel. But it is apparently something that Chris Claremont had lying around because it got put into some book whereupon Chris Aaron thought it was a Sylvester piece. I love that concept art, and I do think that Claremont wanted to make her that. Yeah, that's the trajectory. And I think that Harris said no. And yeah. we'd have to ask both of them, but, you know, that's the vibe that I get. Yeah. In terms of how that would have affected the narrative, it's really hard to say. Oh, wow. Yeah. Without Inferno, the whole narrative of the X-Men changes so extraordinarily, right? I met her in X-Men, so it's like, I don't know what I would think of Maddie at this point. But it's like, would she have gone through the Siege Perilous? Like, that's a good question, you know? And, like, what would that have looked like? Because Well, particularly if she's not a clone, because without Inferno, you don't need that retcon, right? Yeah. Or even or maybe that retcon does happen, but she doesn't turn evil. Like, but there's so many ways. But then who's sinister that this... at that point? <laughs> like, there's, like, there's so many, like. Well, originally, he's 
Jim Jaspers. I mean, like right. Claremont is changing so much on the fly every month, right? Yeah. So it's almost impossible to say, but I do think that in the universe where Gene was in X Factor and Maddie was in X Men, but they didn't have to get rid of Maddie there would have eventually been a very interesting confrontation in the Mutant Wars crossover that Claremont and Simonson had been planning for some time. Because then Gene and Maddie would finally come face to face during that. Mm -hmm. And who knows what that would have been like. I can't even imagine. It's literally unfathomable. Like, but yeah, being cool like, to what think would about. happen if like Inferno didn't totally happen? And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> like I don't know. We're in a totally different universe at that point because Inferno is to me the pivotal X Men story. So. Yeah, it's the climax of the Claremont run to me, so it's hard to say. It's right? easier to say like what would happen if Dark Phoenix didn't happen than it is to say what right. would happen if Inferno didn't happen because it's like Inferno is like. By that point too many moving pieces are on the board right you're almost like but it's the inevitable result of the six choices that happened before it or what you know similar question david welsh writes greetings connor and official lesbian correspondent sarah century i can't think of a better way to observe the hundredth episode of this wonderful podcast sort of a spiritual sequel to your celebration of candy southern for while jim shooter may have fucked everything up every time he took an interest in gene gray (laughs) madeline (laughs) may be the goblin queen forevermore i will always categorize her with candy amanda Sefton, Lee Forrester, Stevie Hunter, Depowered Carol Danvers, and all the other wonderful characters in that subset of human allies slash Claremont dames. I know as creators yourselves, you're reluctant to say what you do with a character in case you ever get the opportunity to write stories featuring them professionally, which I am manifesting. So my question is more speculative. If Jim Shooter had never stuck his nose in, if Gene had never come back, what do you think Madeline would be up to now? Would she still be married to Cyclops? Would there have been a years-long love triangle among Cyclops, Maddie, Havoc, and Polaris? That's a love square, baby. What kind of relationship would she and Rachel have? Or would some writer subsequent to Claremont have fridged her or Mephistoed the marriage out of existence to free up Cyclops for fresh romantic melodrama? Thanks for all the marvelous hours of listening. In addition to enjoying every new episode as it comes out, I want to tell you how much enjoyment I get out of repeat listens to my favorite episodes, and your installments together are very much on my list of repeat favorites, best David. Well, thank you, David. That's very thank kind. Thank you. I think she absolutely would have been fridged by a later writer in the 90s oh, to make sure. Scott single There's no again. way, right? There's yeah. no way she would have survived the 90s. There's no way she would have survived the 90s. And if she did, like 2002, she would have been done for. Like that There's era, no the Ultimates era, like she would have been fucked. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think, too, that it's like, you know, almost like the question of, Sure, like outside of any era of X-Men, could Madeline have survived? And it's like, I just think we gained so much with the Goblin Queen that I can't, I can't lose her. It's actually a lot like what I said earlier about like, well, it's a good thing that Charisma Carpenter got pregnant and Joss Whedon lost his shit because he was going to destroy that character forever. And instead, while the storyline's fucked up, the character is salvaged. And that's kind of how I feel here. Where it's like the circumstances were bad, but it's actually, this is also how I feel about Chuck Austin's Polaris. And that's why last episode I wanted to give him an opportunity to talk about that character more. I think that wedding issue 
issue is sexist and is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But, but it's interesting to hear what he has to say about it. And understanding that his intention is to create a sympathetic arc for her. Yes. Recontextualizes it a great deal, right? Sure. And I think that even if at the time I was furious about that issue, 20 years later, I think it is the issue that made Lorna into the character I love so much now because it was a definitive statement about her when most writers had been really hesitant to say anything about her. And I think that yeah. that is what Maddie gets with Inferno. It's like, yeah. is this an upsetting character assassination storyline? Yes. Does it also make this character iconic? Yes. Because we already have candy, right? It's like we would love candy right. regardless. But that's the thing is, is like she never took a demon turn or anything. Right. Like we've had candy. We've had Charlotte Jones. We've had we these have women the who just stayed good. Woman, you right? know? Like, right. Yeah. And then we have Madeline, who's just like, why is my narrative in service of this other thing? And like, that's what's great about it. She refuses. Like the thing about... The thing that's different between Madeline and Candy is that Candy asserts herself, but still sublimates herself to Warren's narrative in the end. Yeah. And Madeline refuses to ever sublimate herself to Scott's narrative or to Jean's. Yeah. Or to Alex's. I mean, like, that's yes. the thing is, like, it's always her story. Yeah. She won't even let Ben Riley dictate the terms of the yeah. crossover story there and even though he's a more famous character than she is yeah. she's like no this is my <laughs> nope. show <laughs> nope we're in dark web now baby this is all <laughs> the madeline show. keyword dark secondary word web you think you're yes. important i'm important yes in this and that's scenario. the thing is like yeah as much as like we talk i think this whole episode maybe like you see that we have our issues with Inferno, but the whole time it's like this is where she becomes this like she is. creature that like much as I may be like that's not what happened with those retcons. Like I would never throw out Inferno. It's one of yeah. the best things I've ever read in my entire life. So good. And then everything that Madeline becomes there. It's like that's when all of her dialogue just takes off. Becomes Shakespearean operatic crazy shit. Yeah. And like we need that character specifically just the same as we do need a Candy Southern. We don't need five or six Candy Southerns. We need a Candy Southern. We, we need, need Candy back Madeline. and we need Maddie back. Yes. Like and we, now we have Maddie back. Like that's the thing is like they become different functionally. Yeah. And that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, we miss her too. I miss old school Maddie. Of like, I course. do. Of course. And I would like a Maddie who is grappling with the Goblin Queen the way Ilyana grapples with the Dark Child. I think that's very doable. I, but yeah. I think that at the end of the day, you can't go backward. I love a woman who has been changed by the world because pain really does change us, right? And horror changes us the way that life pans out changes us i love the idea of her curbing back into like a healer mode but that's kind of like the growth cycle but i i would never trade any and i think this. always a healer to some extent in the way that the phoenix heals like yeah in a way that kind of burns away rot yeah but isn't comforting you yes. know because that's hard to navigate. And that's like why she goes so awry in a yeah. lot of ways. 
So yeah, I don't know. Because she tries too much to painkill. Yeah. To be anodyne. Yeah. And it doesn't work out for her ever. Yeah, there's a greater complexity. That's the thing with everything is you have this life where everybody tries to make things be really simple, but every single scenario that you interact with in your life is going to be more complicated than you want it to be. And I think that Madeline is such a testament to that. And so it's like, yes, David, we're with you. Like we miss her, (laughs) but like- but we know like this is how it had to this go is how it way. had to be and how it has to be yeah zach armor writes hello connor distinguished guest why is maddie called the goblin queen she sold her soul to a demon worked with that demon led an army of demons but sure let's make it sound like goblins are her thing is it just because goblin queen sounds way cooler than demon queen or is it possible that in his infinite wisdom chris claremont knew that about 30 years later going goblin mode would enter the public's vernacular and this was the slowest of his slow burn reveals p.s love the show thank you for doing it congrats on 100 episodes sincerely zach armor you have the power of the babe what babe the babe with yeah we alluded to this <laughs> earlier but there are two reasons why she's the goblin queen and not the demon queen one is labyrinth which we can't possibly emphasize how big that movie was yes in which david bowie if you're not familiar plays the goblin king prince i don't even fucking remember the goblin king the goblin king so there's that also it's a nod to the comics code yes son of satan was so difficult at times to get published like they just don't want to there's a reason it's limbo and not hell yep Because if you say hell, then the censors get involved. So I think this is similarly that. Like, the event of the Inferno is referred to in character by most characters as the Goblin Knight. So there's that also. I think that the other big thing that Holly Raymond once identified is, like, there is no way that Claremont is not a big fan of Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. (laughs) Good point. Yeah, no shit. So, Yeah. Celine Gallio writes. <laughs> I love when the C count writes in. Mm-hmm. My darling Sarah and Connor, much has happened since I last wrote to you. My star pupil, Madeline Pryor, has ascended to the throne of Limbo. I could not be proud of her, and yet I find my mind drifting to those earlier moments in Paris. <laughs> Whatever became of Ella, hmm? I suppose I ought to look into that. I was the French maid for people listening who have not read X-Men. Uh-huh. At any rate, one question I often ponder is her branding. I must confess I never quite understood the goblin theming, although I do miss dearly the earlier gown with the, as I believe Tabitha told me the youth say, under boob. I'm curious <laughs> as to your opinions on the matter. Perhaps it's time for a change from the goblins. Yours since time immemorial. Celine. Celine, you killed Emma and you know it. <laughs> Thank you for writing in my queen. <laughs> yeah. I think the goblin theming at this point is just so associated with her that you can't really get out of it. But, like, everyone understands that goblin queen means, like, sexy devil queen of hell, and it's fine at this point. Like, it's grandfathered in, even though it's a bit silly. Like, because, yes, goblins does make me think, like, World of Warcraft, generally speaking, but it works for me. I think it works going to text Madeline for you. If you want to text Madeline, Celine, (laughs) you're going to need to text her yourself, okay? And that's that on that. 
Reed Mickelson writes, hello, Connor and Sarah. As a middle-aged flat scan, I'm so thankful for your insights to make it easier for me to talk X-Men with my Zoomer kids. The first <laughs> issue I picked up at my local comic shop was Uncanny X-Men 239. As Inferno issues came out, I also bought older Uncanny issues and the classic X-Men reprints. So I discovered Maddie's story both before and after the Goblin Queen concurrently. By the time she died at the end of Inferno, I'd read Paul Smith's Scott and Maddie romance comic, The Marauder's Attack in the Hospital in San Francisco, her plea to Scott and follow the mutants, her creepy turn in Genosha. This all really endeared me to her, especially to the pre-Inferno version that was so sympathetic and cool. As a result, I've been endlessly frustrated that she's only been the Goblin Queen personality since 1988. I guess this happens with most villain origin stories, but her six-issue villain arc seemed to cancel out five years of character development. I'm sure you've already spoken a version of this rant in the first few minutes of the episode, but what's your extra-textual theory about why this happened? Is it the bestow of a code name? I think the code name's kind of lame, but I know that it changes how a property is treated by editorial. Is it because she died and that somehow cemented her image at the point of her death? I'm inclined to believe the permanent change was mostly due to the underboob costume. At age 12, that costume was the hottest thing I'd ever seen, and it's more memorable than the green flight suit. But were the editors also 12-year-old horn dogs tired of looking at the bra section of the J.C. Penny catalog? Is this another version of the sexy ninja Psylocke effect? If so, does that make Madeline's breasts the most powerful editorial breasts in comics? Until Mark <laughs> Silvestri explains how the Goblin Queen's ragged bikini bottoms didn't constantly flash to limbo demons. Make mine. Cerebro. Great okay, letter. Well, I think that it did flash to limbo demons and she didn't care. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to say... I'm They're gonna welcome. Say, as the, <laughs> you're welcome, <laughs> demons. I'm going to say as a lesbian, the flight suit and the underboob work equally well for me. But, um, but yeah, guess, no, that's... Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yes. I do think it's purely because Inferno is so well-loved as yes. the biggest and best of all of those Marvel summer crossover events in the 80s. yeah. And they they set every part of it up, as we've talked a lot in this episode of like, we're setting this up to make it easy for you to dismiss her. And so I think it's easy for subsequent writers. Like to the be story dismissive. does the work to turn her into just that character. So it's yeah. not weird that later writers might do that. On the but other hand, surprised though, by the James Robinson, stuff. Joe yeah. Pruitt, lots of writers don't do that, even yeah. though the text invites them to. And I think that yeah. that speaks to the strength of the character before that. Like yes. there are very few X-Men characters where there's this extent of they show up and you get like four pages of them explaining their backstory in gorgeously drawn panels yeah. every time. Because yeah. here yeah. it's like the writer wants to stress, but wait, you need to know the context because she was so <laughs> wonderful before Inferno. Yes. Because every writer who has read these comics feels that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. The part that does surprise me every single time is is that I want to dis we just talked about it, right? I want to dismiss right. the time after Inferno, but I can't. I can't because really some of it's good. too good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's horrible stuff in there where you're like, come on. 
but there is I wouldn't sacrifice it. And it's the same of the stuff that's good in X-Men and Cable is so good that I don't want to toss same it. As like it's, the it feels Inferno very baby stuff. with the bathwater like, to me. It's yeah. like Inferno that way. You know? I will never get rid of Inferno. Just baby with the bathwater is a funny thing to say about Inferno where she's trying to throw the baby. <laughs> but out, like but Madeline holding that X-Factor cover. Madeline that X-Factor cover. She's literally like, like <laughs> baby with the bathwater. She's not even worried about the bathwater. It's just let's dispose of the baby. <laughs> To be clear, in Sarah's time zone right now, it is 3.30 in the morning. Check it out. It was just 3.23, which is actually my birthday. And oh, I was just that's like, true. I was like, all right, we've got, we are worse. The first day is, we were recording. It's full like, circle. We're going. We're like doing We're going. This. We're going. And there's nine more pages in this Google Doc, which means that we've gotten through like 11 of them. And I'm very proud of us. Yo, these questions are good. They're good, right? Yeah. I, that's why I couldn't pick. Uh, ah, it was it's hard. Sean L. writes, Hello, Connor and esteemed guests. I discovered the podcast through the hilarious TikToks that frequently graced my For You page. And starting in October, I've binged the entire series on my long work shifts. Now, having submitted myself to the wild ways that is this podcast, I can say I am well and truly Maddie-pilled. Thank you so much for creating this show. It reignited my love for the X-Men after a prolonged dormancy brought on by the Decimation Era and the MCU. Tell us about it, brother. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding, right? Like... It helped affirm that I wasn't crazy for feeling kinship with these wonderful disastrous misfits and also opened my eyes to how diverse and beautiful our ex family is hearing all your guests talk about their own ways they attach themselves to the x-men has truly helped me to grow and care for other minority and marginalized groups the fact that we can all see ourselves in this motley crew makes me truly appreciate how x fans are just as varied and unique as our beloved mutants i hope that someday to me my x-men is a rallying cry for all peoples considered other a sort of positive dog whistle if you will on to the question do you think Maddie's nature as a clone would have been treated with more empathy had it been revealed later? About a decade prior to Dolly the Sheep, I have to imagine that questions about the personhood and identity of clones were pretty hypothetical, and that the view of clones as essentially organic robots based off the original was more common. It's pretty in character for Sinister to want to deny that Maddie had autonomy and personhood, but for characters like Gene and Scott to take that position as well says to me that notions of who and what a clone is or could be were pretty vague. Flash forward to characters like Laura Kinney, who's immediately portrayed with a lot more sympathy, and who is clearly portrayed as her own person, trigger sent nonsense aside. Then you get to franchises like Star Wars and Orphan Black that go out of their way to show how multiple clones of the same person could all wind up with wildly different personalities and outlooks. Thanks again for creating this incredible podcast, which I hope history will vindicate as a watershed moment in the X-Men fandom. Until Marvel does an afterglow shot of Gene, Logan, and Scott in the same bed, make mine Cerebro. Mm. From your lips to God's ears. I can yes. already imagine it. And it's drawn by Russell Dodderman. And it's yes. gorgeous. Yes. And Logan's so little, but so hot. Oh, I love how Karen, short Russell makes Karen, it. Karen, right? Karen Charm, who did the <laughs> yes. uh, husk. Yes. I like that, yes. like uh, Gene and Scott kissing Wolverine on either. Oh, Gene. I know. Like, it's so good. Oh, my God. Well, listen to the husk episode. I love that episode. And, and Karen Charm will be back for season four. We've got some stuff scheduled. That's exciting. I think this is a great question. Like, I don't have further yeah. thoughts on this because I think you're just right. By the time I'm reading this story, Dolly the Sheep exists, I yes. think, right? Because, like, that happens when we're kids. Yes. 
Dolly the Sheep. What year was that? For the Gen the 90s, Z kids, yeah. if you're listening, 1996 was when Dolly the Sheep was born. The year of X-Men. <laughs> the year of X-Men. She was basically like she was the first mammal to be successfully cloned from another mammal. Right. And it was a huge, like everyone freaked out because it was like sci-fi is happening. And then like, yeah. we're not really any further on cloning technology it's... now than we were then. But And the, the same questions apply today as they did then. I just Googled to see what year that was. And people also ask, where is Dolly the clone sheep now? And I'm like, babes, it's been 20 years. How long do you think sheep live? And also, it's, like, can you can you care about sheep that like are <laughs> brutalized by the meat industry? Like, okay, you know okay, okay, okay. Animal act. This is not a PETA podcast, Sarah Sentry. Listen, I am not. I don't eat lamb. PETA. Don't make it my problem. I okay. think they're too cute, so I don't do it. But this is the thing: is is like when you're talking about like activism of any kind. If you're talking about personhood and who belongs into, per <laughs> no, I'm just fucking with you because I knew it would make you laugh. <laughs> It, it does. So the answer, Google answers, Dolly is at the National Museum of Scotland. Dolly captured the public imagination and was donated to National Museum Scotland by the Roslyn Institute. She's been on display at the National Museum of Scotland since 2003 and is popular with visitors of all ages. And I'm like, really? Because I would be disturbed by a taxidermy sheep as a child. I don't like taxidermy generally, though. It freaks me out. Listen, what are museums if not places to keep to be freaked out? <laughs> yeah, no, you're not wrong. Anyway, I think this is a great point. I do yeah. think that in the late 80s, when Madeline is revealed to be a clone, it's very much a statement that she's not real, quote unquote, yes. and that our understanding by the late 90s of clones as essentially children of their parents is a very different mentality from the sci-fi idea of clones in the 80s yeah so yeah definitely i mean like you look at laura kinney who is treated unequivocally as wolverine's daughter yeah from the moment she's introduced yeah and it's just a very different context but in the real world we're still we're, we deal with this stuff all of the time when you're dealing with animal rights activism or if you're dealing with like any like people activism like what constitutes human what humanity Right. autonomy like th these are ongoing questions that i think that we continue to struggle with so the fact that the x-men struggle with it in the 80s i kind of can understand it's cool yeah because like we're and in 2023 and people we're are still not sure what that right means right shit. yeah so, exactly and it's like yeah of course like if you ask us like is madeline a human we there's no point in this podcast where you would not believe that we believe <laughs> that right madeline but there are people who've argued with me about it I've had jobs come at my neck. So, like, there's certainly people who disagree. Yes. And we have to struggle against that forever, right? And, like, that's kind of a, it's just kind of an ongoing thing, I guess. And, uh, you know what? R.I.P. Dolly, right? R.I.P. Dolly the Sheep. Honestly, glad she's on display. That's kind of chic. Love that for her. Honestly, yeah. If they wanted to display my body and have visitors of all ages be fascinated because I'm very popular with them, I would be like, you know what? Go off. Love that Listen, for me. I'm starting to wonder what I'm dead. What do I care? Evil clones. Like we just, didn't we just decide that we're each other's evil? Clones? Yes. I think I'm your evil clone was what we established. 
Christian Smith writes, wow, 100 episodes. Who would have thought that gay little X-Men podcast I found because Jay from Explain the X-Men was on it would blossom into, well, all of this. Me, for the record, I thought it. Connor thought that, actually. No, that was Christian. And I'm saying thank you, Christian, for saying that. Thank you, Christian. That was good of you to think from the beginning. <laughs> so first of all, huge congrats and well done. Can't wait to hear how long you and Sarah talk about Madeline, who did nothing wrong. Yeah. I think at this point, we this episode may be like 20 hours, <laughs> which would be very funny. 20. I don't know. We're going to see. I don't know. And I'm not, a, I'm not a math gay, so I might be like estimating wrong, but we, we just hit the six it. hour mark in this session. We are absolutely killing it. We're killing it. We're killing it hard. Maddie during the Australian era was part of an elite squad of unpowered women running tech ops for superheroes. Candy, Maddie, Sue Dibney, God, I want her and Ralph back, and Barbara Gordon over at DC. You know those four had some insane group chats going on IRC at that time. What TV shows did they all group phone call to watch? Were they into Dynasty and Dallas or Roseanne and Cheers on a Friday night? Or did they all watch Murder, She Wrote and Guess the Killer before the credits? Thanks for everything, Christian. Based on every woman I know who was alive at the time, they were watching Dynasty. But I also think that they would have been big designing women heads. Because Julia Sugarbaker <sighs> is a Claremont dame. I, yeah, I just had like a hard flashback to everything that Jean Smart was ever in. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like all of the women in Designing Women yeah. are Claremont dames. But Jean Smart plays the bimbo in that. So it's like not her typical. So Typically, Jean Smart is very Claremont dame in anything she's in. We're looking at like, it's like the time period that this spans right it's like the late 80s and early mid 90s. to late 80s early 90s yeah right so this is pre-xena right like we're not in pre-xena i would say like golden girls era which i would okay. also say that they all enjoy how about would star trek does T tng tng yeah no right. for sure for sure right. yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna propose that i think that maddie definitely like they they had a twin peaks theories chat where oh, they would leave God. each other thoughts on what they thought was happening on twin peaks how's annie that's like the the maddie question almost <laughs> like 100%. literally how's, how's annie maddie? how's annie and jean's like how do you know about annie <laughs> so yeah yes no, okay very true yes all right got it Trevor Gardemal writes, Dear Connor and Sarah, congrats on 100 episodes. I have a question about Maddie's style. So, and I say this as someone who's yet to read Inferno in my Claremont read-through. I assume that her classic outfit is the result of ripping a dress? I'm not really sure where she got the fabric for the cape and the loincloth or the rings attached to it, but it's pretty clearly battle-worn or whatever. <laughs> Why does she keep wearing it after that? Do you think she's been wearing the same ratty dress for 40 years, just like her sister? LOL. Or does, she <laughs> nice. okay. or does she have a closet of dresses distressed in the exact same manner? I noticed that in Hellions, her outfit appeared a bit more intentional with visible stitching and an accent color in the cape. Who the fuck made that? Also, if you haven't spoken about her sisterhood era khakis, please know how much distress they brought me. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> One of Chris Anka's rare misses. He's like yes. such a great character designer, but those khakis are ungodly tried to bring in like a evolution era gene and it just and it didn't just work. didn't yeah 
The boob window and the little gem and hair were all cute, though. I think it could be salvaged for an X-Corp moment. Infernally yours, Trevor. Yeah. I just object to that updo because, again, that's a Jean hairstyle to me, not a Madeline hairstyle. There's there's no part. That brilliant teen jean design by Jamie McKelvey that everyone's like, this is one of the best superhero designs ever. I'm like, you're not wrong, but I hate it because she has yeah. a Maddie haircut and yes. it's not a Jean haircut. Yeah. I'm like, I love the outfit, but I'm like, that's a haircut Madeline would have, not Jean. And I, I have very strong opinions on these two women and their hair. All that to say, the dress is actually like regalia she receives upon accepting the role of the Goblin Queen from the demons. Like it comes that way, but it is visually based on the dress that Jean wore at the Rainbow Room back in the day that Wolverine tore so that she could help fight off Stephen Lang and the Sentinels. Go to the Cerebro Claremont Marathon on the Patreon if you'd like to hear me talk about those episodes and more episodes of that Claremont read-along marathon will be coming soon now that I'm done with this Ozymandias-type <laughs> monument to my own insanity. What's interesting about Madeline is actually that when she comes back, she tends to have a new outfit like every time, yep. but it always evokes the Goblin Queen outfit. Yeah. The handy thing also is that she makes outfits out of magic. Like in that first issue of the actual Inferno, not the prologue vanities, but like the one after that, she does change dresses like 50 times in that first scene. So she can yes. just do that. Yes. So I think that the one in Hellions is more intentional. It has the purple accent color inside the cape, which looks super cool. And it is much more of like an intentional garment as opposed to something ripped up. And I think that's just because she was resurrected in those fucking khakis and was like, I got to make myself a pussy ass new version of that <laughs> Goblin Queen outfit because I'm missing the underboob and these khakis are doing nothing for my hips. <laughs> There's this like, um, what is that video where the guy is just like, this person is appearing in this anime, like tits out. And somebody is just like, that's actually part of her characterization. And like, that's how I feel whenever like somebody is just like, I don't like the underboob. I'm just like, that's actually totally makes sense. Because like- <laughs> Madeline makes me think of Hideo Kojima tweeting about Metal Gear Solid <laughs> and Quiet, that character who is like a mute woman sniper who's like almost entirely naked. And people are like, what the fuck is this character, Hideo Kojima? And he goes, when you understand the reasons for her exposure, you will be ashamed of your words and deeds. <laughs> I think about that all the time. That's the thing. It's like if Jean dresses like Madeline, then you're like, whoa, that's that would be psychotic. But, but, but like when Madeline does it, you're just like that fucking owns like. You and here's great. what it is. It's because she shows up in that outfit and her dad, Mr. Sinister, is like, young lady, what are you wearing? <laughs> and she's like, I wear what I and want. And she's like, I wear what dad. I want, dad. Fuck you. <laughs> and that's the thing about it that makes it feel really cool yeah. and fun. Yeah. And then Havoc showing up in it, too. <laughs> right right she's not doing it for men she's doing it for herself and also because fuck my dad yeah and i think that that is fun about yes. her that is fun you know it's also just such a striking silhouette there isn't really any other character in comics who does that sharp under boob halter top thing 
it's like what else are you gonna do like after it's the iconic thing at this happens, point like, it's just such it's, a good design it's like power girl where people try to like design out they're this, like, always trying to design out the boob window and it always comes back because guess what without the boob window we're just looking at some blonde chick power girl has a boob window and, and it looks cool just it's go with it. So funny whenever like or it's like whenever story. they put pants on Wonder Woman and you're like Wonder Woman doesn't wear pants. Get you over don't have it. To. Just like get over it. The thing with like yeah, when power with Power Girl whenever they were like it's because I don't have a symbol. Oh my god, that scene is so embarrassing. <laughs> I'm just looking for the symbol, Clark. This is not a DC podcast. We can't Listen, get into Power I'm Girl say discourse. That like literally like anytime I've worn like a cleavage shirt, I'm gonna say I didn't weep over having to wear the cleavage shirt. I'm just like, I'm wearing a goddamn cleavage shirt. Oh, I can't find my symbol. It's a hole. <laughs> But that's the thing is, it's like you don't even have to explain Madeline's <sighs> no. other than Madeline just like, has hot tits and wants to show them off because fuck you, Dad, and fuck you, Scott, and fuck you, Jean, because Jean is not gonna wear this. And Jean would never <laughs> have her tits out like that. And Madeline's saying, "Oh, our tits—they're great. Let me show yeah. them off because Why don't you we won't, talk about our tits, you frigid yeah. bitch." And that's fun. <laughs> yeah, it is fun. I don't know. I've never hated the underboob outfit. I just can't. I just can't. Kathleen Snook writes, Dear Connor and Sarah, congratulations on making it to 100 episodes of Cerebro. That's an amazing accomplishment, and I couldn't think of a better guest for this giant size moments with Maddie. I agree. <laughs> I have a few questions about the illustrious Madeline Pryor. It seems to me like Maddie really needs new friends who will support her and not abandon her. <laughs> I've been really enjoying reading her and Janine, and I feel like they vibe really well together. I could even see her potentially having a healthy friendship with Ilyana, as Ilyana and Havoc seem to be the only ones willing to give her the benefit of the doubt from the beginning of Dark Web. Who else do you think would be a good friend for her? Thank you again so much for everything you do, and congratulations again on episode 100. Best, Kathleen. So... As I said earlier and alluded to, and I will say no more about it because I do like just want to write this comic one day. I think that establishing her old existing friendship with Amanda Sefton would be super, super fun. Otherwise, I liked her and Janine, but then Janine and Ben betrayed her. So I don't know about it. She's not good at forgiveness. So I just don't know if that's going to pan out for them. I think she and Patsy Walker would be really fun. Of course, because Patsy and everybody. But like also I had this like I had this concept at one point where I was like, what if I got to write an infinity comic about Maddie Pryor being set up on a blind date with Damon Hellstrom? Like I thought that would be really funny. And then I was like, she would have the worst time and then meet Patsy and then they would become best friends. I am dying because you are correct. And right? there's I mean, Patsy. Patsy is the old timer where everything that happens to her that is absolutely horrific. She's like, well, it's cool, dudes. Dusting myself I'll come off back later. I'll <laughs> figure it out. I love Patsy oh, Walker. I actually can't like do that because I'm going to take like a like a self healing break. But like, I'll be like right back. Patsy Walker is Hellcat for X-Men fans listening who don't know who the fuck I'm talking about. She's fun. Google her. There's gonna... a new book. Chris Cantwell is doing a miniseries. And his Hellcat annual with Hetty was super fun. Yes. I can't help but ship Patsy and Hetty is the problem that I have oh, sometimes with Patsy well, and Hetty comics. Well, because Patsy's but... fucking queer, okay? Like, there's well, no getting Hattie away from that. Well, and Hetty is obsessed with her. Yeah, there's no getting away from that. Like, there's, I mean, dating to the Defenders, we've got the Valkyrie Hellcat. Like, there's just no... Valkyrie and Hellcat, it's... The vibes are there. Anyway, I'm this gonna is not... say... 
I want to see because there's no character on the face of the planet that I do not want to see interacting with Janet Van Dyne that I want to see Madeline interacting with Jan- Janet Van Dyne. Well, particularly Dine. given that Janet Van Dyne in a timeline only Alex can remember was the mother of Alex's Listen. child, which is also true of Madeline because she was the mother of Alex's child in the Mutant X timeline that she can't remember. So like, you know. The Riverdale moment of Veronica Lodge seeing the two Reggies together and being like, <laughs> listen, we could have a pretty sweet thing going on here. I think is like such a Janet move, right? Like Janet would be like, that's fun. So I like that. There's like, and I, regardless of the fact that probably nobody is going to go for that, I think that Janet would. <laughs> so <laughs> Janet is like the best because Janet makes the worst romantic decisions on purpose. Like, Janet oh, for is sure. Just like, I mean, I'm still waiting for the Janet and Yacasta road trip comic that i would love to write god janet it's like <laughs> like i'm dying like I, that's very gene and maddie core right like janet and yacasta yes less hostile but like it would be funny in the same way, way. less hostile because like janet is just a fucking chill person and well also so, yacasta like, is like a pretty accommodating person also yeah, so like it would both, be like, you know janet's always just like Yacast has always given Janet her space, yes, which I think Janet appreciates. Versa, right? right? Yeah, like, exactly. This is not an Avengers podcast. We have to move we're on. We're going to do that episode somehow. <laughs> but Adam Garvey writes. Adam Garvey writes, Dear Connor and Sarah, longtime listener, first time caller. I'm from Rockland County, New York, so no need for a fancy accent. I'm also one of those Gen Z gays who found your podcast through the TikToks made from the <laughs> Celine episode, and I've been hooked ever since. We'd love to see it. Yes. I have a lot of thoughts about how Strife and Maddie could come together and how yes. it would develop specifically Strife's character as more than just Cable's evil clone slash twin. But do Maddie and Strife even know about each other? I feel like Maddie doesn't know about Strife, and his existence seems like it would be a secret the X-Men are keeping from her. I feel like Strife could really thrive in limbo as maddie's enforcer potential heir what do you think best adam garvgoyle on the discord she does know about strife yes we skipped over this we skipped over this story in x-man because i hated it in a way um there's downsides strife tries to fuck madeline in that story which is crazy fucked for two reasons. A, that's your mom. B, you're gay. <laughs> it's almost like it's like more perverse than X-Man somehow. It's weird. It's way. Oh, it's way weirder. And Madeline, to save Nate, pretends that she's into it until she can yes. betray Strife from within. So, Which is like, yo. If X-Man Madeline was Madeline, which for the purposes of this episode at that juncture in X-Man we're saying she was then she does know who Stripe is, and she's like, that was weird. Overall, <laughs> if we set that story aside because it's crazy, yeah, I agree that, like, all I want is for Madeline Strife to interact. I think that oh. she would have the utmost sympathy for him, and I think that he would be the son that she wants that Cable never can be, and that mm-hmm. she would help fix him, or could, you know, like she could yeah. at least try. It'd be fun. No one yeah. thought she could be fixed. No one thought she could come around to the side of good. And maybe Strife can be saved somehow. And yes. maybe she could be the one to do it. That's the thought I've had. Of, I've had lots of thoughts about this. So I'm not going to say anything else because like, you know, who knows? Maybe 25 years from now, I'm writing like Strife War. 
sins of the yeah. mother or whatever. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. But I, I think I, it could be get, really cool. We want him to talk it out. We want him to get it together. Like, we love all these characters and we want him to talk to each other. Rachel. Absolutely. Bring Rachel in because Rachel's going to be the great mediator. Oh, we're going to get to Rachel. Hold on. That's literally the next question. So stop right there. Because I sorted these questions on related themes. I see. Harry from Ireland writes, well, here we are. A hundred episodes and now Mother is here. I want to thank you, Connor, for creating this podcast as a space for us ex-fans and for queer people especially. This centennial special feels so earned and well-deserved. Since her debut, Maddie Pryor has been a key part in the lives of two of the most important characters in the X-Men franchise, Jean Grey and Scott Summers. Since the incredible Sarah Sentry's on this episode, I feel like this is an important question to ask. How does Rachel feel about our girl Maddie? Coming from an alternate time line where your mom never died so her clone never appeared must really cause a lot of psychic damage now since they met pre-clone reveal how do you think rachel feels about maddie these days obviously given her bond with cable there has to be some conflicting feeling on her part to end my letter i want to thank you connor i've never had a favorite x-men character until you talking about maddie so much on the podcast made me read all her classic stories minus x-man <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Finding her and learning about her and discussing her has made my comics journey truly memorable, and I thank you for that. Giving you all the best. Sarah, I love your work, too, and it's always a joy hearing you on this show. Take care. Harry from Ireland, Maddie Pryor's defense leader on Twitter. Best wishes. That's so sweet. Nice. Thank you. Yes, very sweet. And Harry writes in a lot, so thank you, Harry, for writing in so much. Thank you. Rachel would love Maddie. Like, yes. I, I don't I know. I think they probably get along now. Rachel famously was a brat about Maddie existing, but never like took it out on Maddie to her face. Yes. And then in Inferno, as we mentioned, Rachel flies up and is like, mom? And Maddie's like, no, bitch, and zaps her out of the sky. But that's the only real interaction they've had. Yes. More <laughs> weird stuff for the summers to sort out. But what I will, particularly what I would like to, like what we don't know yet, and this is something that I think might be revealed over the course of Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, as we explore the Ascani plot more, is like, yes. does Rachel remember being Mother Ascani? Yes. We don't know that yet. And if she does, then you'd think she'd be very sympathetic to Madeline's dilemma, given that she created strife. But my sense at the moment is that Rachel doesn't remember being Mother Ascani, but understands that, like, it's part of her calling knows that that was like a timeline that got averted or whatever, but like doesn't quite remember it. So I think that's an arc we could see unfold, you know, like I would, but I would love to see them interact is what I'm saying. Rachel's unending sympathy for others, I think would make her be able to access. Rachel's an extraordinarily compassionate person unless yeah. you're Celine and like Celine deserves it. So, Not the you know. underdog. It's like, yeah, uh, Rachel loves the underdog and Rachel yeah. loves the misunderstanding person and like that's what she lives for so she would the way that we love maddie rachel loves maddie like trust me yeah i think that rachel as someone who feels like she isn't scott and jean's real child yes. in this timeline would understand how Massive maddie feels as a person ground. who's not real quote unquote you know yes no, I, I just, I would love to see them interact because everything, like everything you just said, every, it's like Rachel will love Maddie for sure. Like personality mm -hmm. tribes, they just, they'll click. 
Stephen Adewell writes, hello, Connor and Sarah Sentry. First of all, just wanted to say congratulations for hitting episode 100. It's an enormous accomplishment, and I can't think of a better way to celebrate than this week's episode. <laughs> On to my questions. One, as I think Connor's mentioned before, there are a lot of parallels between Madeline Pryor and the Greek Medea, at least as literary or dramatic archetypes go. What I find interesting about Madeline is that hers is a case where the sacrificed child gets to survive and say what they think of the mother's treatment, rather than being silenced by the narrative. Do you think Cable's relationship with Madeline will change now that she has the memories of having raised him after Inferno? Should it? Yes, and I'd love to see it, and I would love to see them talk, and I also think that that's something that could be like in the realm of fan fiction in our brains, and the next time we see them together, their relationship and dynamic is just different. Either of those things would be interesting to me, but I'm keen to see them in the same room again i can't wait until that happens because yes. their stuff in those james robinson cable issues is so interesting yeah 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 there's and a I lot think that there anybody who has questions about that should check those issues out if you haven't already because yeah, they're so stuff, good it's like they they really are hashing things out even though it's like he's not regarding like it's like weird Madeline, ghost Madeline, or whatever. Right. But we are seeing a lot. But they're of still how having the conversations yeah. that he feels the need to have. You know. Yeah, I would love to see them talk now. Yeah. Two, so this is something that came up in Dark Web. I had a slightly different reaction to the horror comedy deaths of bystanders in that event than I did with Inferno, because these days I work in Midtown Manhattan and had a harder time dissociating myself from the nameless crowds of people being menaced by demonic infrastructure than I did with the slightly more touristy deaths in Inferno. <laughs> what is it with Madeline that even though her beefs tend to be very personal and directed at a small handful of people who've done her wrong, so often involve high levels of collateral damage, including people who might be me if I lived on her 616 and should madeline maybe make an effort to make amends with the people of new york as opposed to just scott gene cable etc congratulations again stephen adewell first thing i have to say is it is canon that the events of inferno are rewound by her failure to complete that spell so everybody was fine yes and i will also note that if you felt like during inferno that you were not necessarily connecting in the same way you should listen or you should check out the power pack issues because there it is very real the annie nascenti daredevil issues for inferno also are like office people getting fucked up and then just power pack is like louise simonson going off and oh, so she goes hard yeah on those issues Weezy never pulls her punches on Power Pack. And I'm always just like, who was this book for? Because I love should not it. read this. Yeah, <laughs> because it's so dismissed by people. I remember reading it as a kid and everybody was like, that's like the girl's goofy comic or whatever. And I was, it's much as, much as so many comics that were dismissed in that way. I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, there's people dying. Um, Yeah, I don't know. What do you think about Madeline? It's like, those are the breaks baby like that's the whole superhero vibe right like that's there's what always happens. people and so if we're gonna hold people accountable i think madeline might be the wrong person to start with i we think like the with, hulk like, has killed more people in new york city than madeline hulk, has you know what captain I mean? america like <laughs> this is what madeline would say so we really are right Madeline's so we're defense we're being the devil's right advocate right now yeah but I mean, I think that the big thing is her body count, given that Inferno got rewound and Dark Web, as we pointed out, the only confirmed kill is that Salvation Army Santa. I think she's doing okay, personally. Just saying. 
you know what if you we should all be so lucky to be killed by madeline Pryor. <laughs> right if you gotta go you're gonna go you might as like, well go at the hands of a diva of a woman with huge hair under boob like a cape like this is i mean absolutely the like legend foresaw that this was how i was gonna go so Colin and Nas writes, hi, Connor and Sarah. 100 episodes, MJP. Yes. Congratulations, and I can't wait to listen to the next 100. If you'll allow me the chance to be soft, I just want to say thank you for creating this platform and building this community of people. I'm grateful that you've welcomed me into it and glad that I can call you a friend because of it. Well, I feel the same way. Thank you. Yeah. Sarah, you're an icon. I'm excited to listen to this sure-to-be classic. Okay, all that You're aside. an icon, though. Like, straight up. Like, your episode. Mm -mm. <laughs> don't, don't try to call me an icon if i can't call you an icon another person i'm gonna bring back in 2023 great this is gonna be a great year for this podcast yeah we all know the tragedy of madeline jennifer Pryor standing in the shadow of the great jean gray but she's not the only redhead that stood in that position when i think of mjp these days i can't help but also think about hope summers beyond the obvious similarities in the meta narrative they share the unique situation of being characters whose origin and existence is related specifically to the absence of Jean Grey. That aspect of their creation is seeped into their individual stories to the point that getting away from the ghost of Jean has been, at some point or another, one of their key motivations. Same. <laughs> so my question is, how do you think the Messiah and her Queen of Hell grandmother would interact? I'm sure they'd have a lot to talk about. Sending you to all the love, Kaladin Nas. Great question. I think that after Sins of Sinister, like after Immoral X-Men number two, where we saw that sinisterized hope is like very Maddie in her way. And we've seen too, that hope is always siding with the underdog and is, I think they the would be really too. fun. I've been thinking that ever since Maddie came back that she and hope would have fun. Honestly. She is going to, it's like, the way and hope that, would call her grandma, like to troll her, but Maddie would think it was funny. Like, I really do that think that Cable it could be fun. Is like, no hope would be like, hell yes. Like that's basically my response. Cable yeah. Especially like, because no. it would annoy her dad in a way she would think is funny she would love it like everything <laughs> that we've heard from hope ever like she would love maddie like that's another yeah. character like uh, maybe more than rachel actually like oh hope yeah is, no like... i think i think rachel's always going to i think that the celine vibe that maddie sometimes has like i think rachel could never like they could never be like super close rachel yeah but i think that maddie and hope could be like tight in a way yeah. that would be really funny Yes. And Exodus and would, would love everyone. Maddie. Come on. <laughs> oh, my God. Just the group. Let's get them in. Let's get the guys all together. <laughs> <laughs> Jameson Jadziniak writes, Dear Connor and honorable and or esteemed guest, long-time listener in that I've listened to most of the episodes in a short span of time. As of writing, I'm on the Boom Boom episode, but first-time writer. Good episode. As someone who never thought I would enjoy any podcast, I'm so happy my friend recommended this one to me. I've absolutely loved it through and through. Your dedication and that of your guests, along with the insights into both fun and darker topics, is always a wonderful and fascinating listen. Thank you for continuing to do this. Please don't stop. I don't intend to, but if you don't subscribe on the Patreon, go subscribe on the fucking Patreon. I do. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying. I'm like, you know. No, like I do. Like as in like a. No, no, no. I know. But we're like. Thumbs up. We're like about to give them like 
a lot of hours of free content. So hours yeah, I of don't free even content. at this point I don't even know. So like please, <laughs> patreon.com slash rebrocast. Mama's gotta eat. Anyway, this is less of a question and perhaps more of a challenge, particularly for Connor. Connor, you are Ms. Madeline Pryor's, a.k.a. Maddie Pryor, doing business as the Goblin Queen's self-described defense attorney. Working in the legal field as I do, sometimes we need to concede certain arguments or issues in order to make our overall cases more plausible and relatable. To that end, can you and your guests name three things you don't like about Ms. Pryor? Not bad storylines or her going crazy, because who wouldn't have an existential clone crisis, but things she's done that you disagree with with clothing choices, actions, etc. Other than the thing you mentioned in the Threnity episode, which, no, I haven't listened to that yet at the time of writing this, but I have my sources. Thank you and warmest regards, Jameson Jadziniak. Well, Madeline is what we would call an imperfect witness, right? Like, she, she's somebody right. who has a lot of holes in her story and her narrative. <laughs> it's very easy for us to judge. We have to start pulling in character witnesses to explain her behavior. Like, yeah. there's definitely that. If I had to name three off the top of my head, first, those khakis, criminal. We've already addressed <laughs> them, but, like, been them, Khakis, sweetie. no, but underboob has made a comeback. So, like, keep the underboob. Sure, no. just the khakis, no. I don't like that she always blames Jean so profoundly. And, like, she does blame Scott, but she really, it should really be much more about Scott. And she tends to project it onto Jean, which I interpret as both an internalized sexism thing, but also a deep resentment of the real us, right? Like, the real girl. I'm hopeful that as things move forward she can recognize Jean as different from her in a way that's okay and that they can move past that because I much prefer when she's beating up on twisted sick disgusting men that's what I want to see Madeline Pryor do. I, that's where we're at yeah uh and for a third thing man I don't know I really like just about everything about this character um I would lean in to just the fact that after Scott leaves, she really doesn't. She makes like a general statement. Like she talks a little bit about how she misses him. But if I were going to be like her actual defense attorney, I would be like, she's not trying to really like contact him. <laughs> you could have tried harder. Madeline's not really trying to track him down by any stretch, right? Like, she wants her baby back, but she doesn't necessarily want Scott back. Well, but I wouldn't want him back either, so no. who could blame her? He's like know? an ancient dude at that point, right? Right. So, I gotta say, the new scythe, I get that, like, giving a character an iconic weapon is always good for the character, but to me, it's a little anime for me. Speaking as somebody who has literally a full back tattoo of the character from the Gene Roland movie Fascination from 1979 where she is wielding a scythe, I gotta say... It only works a couple of times in pop culture. We can't do it too many times. Scythes are not actually great weapons. I, I don't want to emphasize the Scythe of Sorrows. I think it's a little over the top in a way that and she doesn't need it. 
but it was cool for dark web. It works for vampire lesbians in the 70s. It doesn't need to work today. Harry Hamzat writes, Dear Connor, an esteemed guest, good whatever time you're reading this, Connor, and guest. As you already know, love the podcast, love what you do. What Ice Spice song do you think is Madeline Pryor's favorite? I personally think it's Euphoric. That's correct. And I have nothing else to say about that. Sarah, I don't know if you're an Ice Spice fan as I am, but nope. that's the correct answer. Gotcha. I'm going to listen to it after we get off this call. It's great. L listen to her whole of. There isn't that much of it at this I point, see, but uh, she's great. And Euphoric is absolutely listen, the one. The Candy Southern playlist on Spotify. So hold that thought the because the next question is Jesse <laughs> Adkins, right? Dear Connor and Sarah, while we all know that the Florence of the Machine album did Dance Fever is secretly about our dear Maddie, correct? I'm curious yes. to know what other songs or albums give off big Goblin Queen energy. What would Maddie listen to now that she's the Queen of Limbo? What would she sing along to in the car when she's having a terrible day and just needs to get it out? As always, love the pod and especially love every episode with Sarah. The Candy Southern episode is one of my absolute faves. Make mine cerebral at Jesse Adkins. Well, guess what? Much like with the Candy episode, my Madeline Pryor playlist is now public on Spotify and is linked in the comments on this episode's thread on Twitter. It features a number of artists that I love, but I would say that the things that really ground me in like a Maddie headspace when I am thinking about her and like making a playlist. Obviously, the first song on it is Gone to America by Steel Ice Band because what am I, crazy? You got to do that. But Susie and the Banshees is very Maddie core to me. Sinead O'Connor, sure. PJ Harvey. A lot of like 90s and late 80s women who are really fucking pissed off, you know? In terms of contemporary artists, Bat for Lashes has lots of Maddie vibing songs. The song Mary Magdalene by FKA Twigs is like deeply Maddie Court to me because Madeline, the name, if you're not familiar with its etymology, is from Magdalene. So there's that too, right? Yes. My favorite like weird deep cut, it's not like actually weird deep cut because it was a popular song, but like the thing that I'm proudest where I was like, this is about Maddie Pryor is Alaska by Maggie Rogers. I don't think I know this one. Oh, it's great. But like it's lyrically perfect for her breakup with Scott and also is called Alaska. So I felt really good about that. And those are my answers. I'm going to add the Teenage Jesus and the Jerk song Orphans, which is like mm. very uh, abrasive, I'm going to say. But it's like <laughs> little orphans running in the bloody snow or something is like the lyrics to it. I It's Lydia Lunch. It's very Madeline, I think. And then I was going to add the song Anyone Who Had a Heart. Oh, love is, that. Yeah. Uh, a Dionne Warwick album. And Dionne mm -hmm. Warwick, I am obsessed with. I love Dionne Warwick. I'm going to say the Scylla Black version of Anyone Who Had a Heart oh, that's would good. be that's really, good. really fucking good for Maddie. Yeah, yeah. Those were both like ones that just came up off the top of my head. Uh, I'm sure that there's a lot of really good answers to this. I'm looking forward to listening to the, the playlist that you pull together for sure. Sam Gladstone writes, happy 100 to you in the pod. And naturally you chose Maddie as a topic because it makes absolute sense. Welcome back, Sarah Sentry. <laughs> a true delight to hear you back for such a momentous occasion. I'm sure you've been talking for five hours, so question time. <laughs> this session alone, we've been talking for almost seven. So, yes. anyway. 
if, and that's a giant if, the Maddie and Gene of it all did get adapted into the MCU, this is not about who you'd cast, but how you'd cast, would you prefer to hire the same actress and do a little Lindsay Lohan parent trap? Or would it continue the mystery of Maddie easier for those who haven't read comics to hire two actresses who look eerily similar, like Samara Weaving and Emma Mackey? This is not an endorsement for those two actresses who are very talented, but more of an example of two ladies who have eerily similar looks. Do we rest it on, boy, Scott does have a type or Scott's new girlfriend looks exactly like his old one and no one says shit. Regardless of the answer, I know it'll be a great episode. Keep it up. You are all doing great. Sam Gladstone, <laughs> AKA Reese Indigo. <laughs> I think it has to be the same actress because then it's a reference back to Vertigo when Kim Novak plays those two yes. characters. Like bring so it back has to Ke- Kim Novak to play this role. <laughs> you know what? I just had like a really severe moment of being like I should have mentioned this but the Lena Levick song uh bird song I think would be a great Madeline look it up people but yeah no so like in my dreams if we were doing it like this year Jessica Chastain would play Jean and Maddie and it would slay but she'll probably be too old by the time the MCU is casting Jean she's probably too old now frankly the MCU always casts like 20 year olds so like I don't know it's like I love you 20 year olds and all that but But like, like I'm old so I don't yeah and even as a kid, I like I looked at the X Men as being like older than me. Right? Yes. Like when you're like, if you the O five like absolutely should be forty in any yeah. movie, and I just don't and know I if they're gonna that. do that, unfortunately. So and that's we'll what see. like you know what it's like one of my things where you're just like I wish that not only was Mystique older, but I kind of wish that like Destiny had stayed a lot older, and like oh. there's like a few like I don't mind Destiny being younger again because in my head she's now like Rachel Vice. Like, I think she's still, like, 50. Yeah. She's just, like, not ancient, you know? Which, like, it was still hot when they were ancient. But, like, I don't know. I know, but, like, I do get if you were resurrecting me and you resurrected me 150 instead of 50, I'd be annoyed. like, look, you're 80. But so we have a good, like, five years left. Right. Like, logically, (laughs) it does make sense to bring her back, like, you know, maybe 40 years old, right? Yeah. If somebody resurrects me whenever I'm any, uh, uh, just resurrect me at 75 and I'm good. (laughs) Love that for you. I would prefer to be in fighting shape. Jeremy Lawrence writes, hi, Connor and Sarah. First things first, congratulations on 100 episodes. This podcast really reinvigorated my love for the X-Men, Marvel, and comics in general. So much so that it encouraged me to throw myself into working on a comic book-themed web series with some friends, with some friends, and also to try my hand at writing comics myself. Don't worry, there won't be any pitches in this email. Well, thank you. My question is, how many times do you think Maddie has pegged the Summers brothers in the hundreds? And how jealous do you think she got when she found out Jean gets to watch Logan absolutely rail Scott on the moon? I have no comment beyond yes, yes and very. For sure. One million. Thanks again for all your hard work creating a thoughtful and inclusive space where even oblivious flat scans like myself feel welcome. Ooh, love that. Love that this is a flat scan question. Okay, fine. Like, love to that expand an oblivious mine. oblivious one? Because that feels like it wasn't oblivious. <laughs> Make mine cerebro until the heat death of the universe or until you decide to stop making new episodes. Whichever comes first. Jeremy. Quinn Buckley writes, hello, Connor and distinguished guests. I've only been listening to the podcast for a few months now, but it's really helped me jump into the X franchise in a way I never thought I would be able to between this sheer number. 
of issues to cover. By taking it character by character, Cerebro's been an incredible way to grasp the plot as well as I can while learning who my favorites are in the process. Speaking of favorites, I have a question about yours, Connor, Maddie Pryor. Before Maddie was the second coolest thing Chris Claremont could think of, a demon sorceress, she was the first coolest thing he could think of, a lady pilot. As I hear about her exploits as the former, it makes me wonder, when was the last time this lady flew a plane in continuity? More importantly, how do we get her back in a plane today? Yes. Does Good she point. even want to fly a plane? Are there planes in limbo? While there are many things to dig into about this character, these are the questions that continue to keep me up at night. Once again, I appreciate the podcast as it's made hours of work in school far more entertaining than they have any right to be. <laughs> Make mine cerebro. Quinn, we must get Maddie back into a plane. It is our moral imperative as a society. Yes. Yeah. And I believe that she could fly a cool limbo demon plane and it would fucking whip. Yes, one million times before I would ever get into a plane with any other person in the X-Men, I will get into Maddie's plane. Maddie landed that fucking plane in the ocean and then fought off sharks and squids without any powers. If we die, it's because of Sinister, not because of Maddie. If you die in a plane crash with Maddie prior, the plane caught you slipping. It was not Maddie's fault. Yeah, Maddie did what she could. Bottom line. Tom Burkett writes, Dear Connor and Sarah, your riveting episode on Rachel Summers was the first installment of Cerebro I listened to some 18 months ago, so it's only fitting my first email to the pod be addressed to your esteemed selves. But, as always, on to the Goblin Queen. <laughs> my inaugural question for you relates to Maddie's optics in a post-dark web world. Though at the time of writing, I haven't read the conclusion of this tremendously fun arc, it's hard to imagine anybody being content with Madeline keeping her throne in light of the mayhem she immediately caused after acquiring that seat. <laughs> Not only this, I think it's safe to say she wouldn't back down if the quiet counselor, the X-Men in particular, came knocking. Therefore, Connor, as her defense attorney, what would your advice be to a woman whose popularity is well and truly in limit? Limbo. Keep your head down and surrender to a peaceful life on Krakoa. Ruin everybody else's peaceful lives on Krakoa. Take a trip to Otherworld and live out a new fantasy. Or perhaps pen a tell-all memoir, shining a light on the treachery you've experienced at the hands of a mutant royal family for whom you were only ever a spare. The Freudian revelations of a certain prince have nothing on the relationship between Nate Gray and his mother, after all. Thank you both for your ever-insightful and trailblazing contributions to the discourse. Cerebro has been a tonic and a turbulent few years for myself, and it never ceased to make me smile or think for that matter neither of which are a bad thing so again thank you all the best tom aka lydiard militant on twitter well thanks tom that's very kind of you dark web has now concluded with maddie retaining her throne because she was basically like oops my bad but you guys really fucked me over so bad and gene who everyone listens to being like that's my sister let's be nice to her please yes so that's really the vibe. Like, the big thing that Maddie can do now is exactly what she's doing, which is her limbo embassy. I can't wait to see what happens next. The vibe is that she and Alex are going to start some kind of team of their own, and I think the potential for that to be hysterically funny is so high yeah. that I can't wait to see what they're going to do. The whole time you were asking this question, there was flames appearing behind me and me cackling madly, and that is the vibe, right? Like... 
she's never going to put her head down and quietly do anything. <laughs> that's not what she does. We, we can we can advise her to do that. That's not. But that's like not that would be a do. foolish thing for us to do because guess how you get fired as someone's she representative? Goes, Offer them no. advice that you know that they will never ever take yeah. until they get annoyed with you and drop you. You yeah. have to know your client, and in this case. I know Maddie's not going to do that. So what I'm going to say is then go big, baby. Own it. Own it. <laughs> As Lisa Rinna once said, yeah. you got to just own it. <laughs> As Lisa Rinna once said. <laughs> also a demonic entity who's yes, made a pact with a dark true. higher power. Yeah, yeah. And looks fabulous doing it. Yeah. Sure does. Arno Fresnel writes, Dear Connor and Sarah, first, congratulations for reaching episode 100. You've done a cracking job producing an amazing podcast and fostering a wonderful community. So well done. I don't really have a specific question because I'm sure the Maddie Nation will come through with brilliant and thoughtful questions. So instead, here is an amuse-bouche for you and Sarah. Connor, if Marvel contacted you to write a Madeline Pryor comic with the following conditions, would you accept the deal? One, the goblin force from Mutant X must come back for real, yes. not in a flashback, a dream, or an imaginary story. Two, Madeline has to utter the line, it's goblin time, as an homage yes. to the critically reviewed movie Morbius. She needs to be in full possession of her mental capacities at the time. And three, Nate Gray must appear in all his 90s glory yes. congratulations again i hope you all have a great time recording the episode and long live maddie kind regards are no here's the thing goblin force and all i would do it i would take the job here we are even though most marvel books these days are only four or five issues i'd be like i will find the space i will work all these things in because Guess what? If you compress shit like your Chris Claremont, you can have her deal with Nate Gray and all his 90s glory and mention the Goblin Force and apologize for the fact that it's Goblin time all in one page before she then <laughs> flies off into limbo to parley with Nastir for the soul of Candy Southern or whatever the fuck I would write. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. The answer is yes across the The answer the board. is yes. The answer is Marvel, if you're listening. Whatever <laughs> you want me to do, if I get to write prior the Prestige miniseries, I'm in. Call me. <laughs> I will sell the fuck out. I will write whatever the fuck you want me to write as long as I also get to write the hot Madeline sizzling Maddie Pryor. content that the people crave. Yes. Last question, and then we're done. I swear to God. <laughs> Krakoa Welcomes writes, Sarah Century, what is your statement as a character witness in the trial of Madeline Pryor? During, during which moment? <laughs> and then writes, Connor Goldsmith, what is your closing argument as Madeline Pryor's defense attorney? And while I would love to make Krakoa's life easier and just do a paragraph length from each of us right now so that Krakoa could just make that into TikToks really quickly. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to say. And I'm sorry, Krakoa, because I know you're going to do it. You're going to sift through all 20 hours of this fucking podcast and make the best TikToks you can. This episode is both of those things. I think we came with a goal I said to her, we might record for like seven hours. This is gonna be like the longest episode of this podcast. We've now recorded for like basically an entire day. This is it. This is the great work. This is the thing we have made. Look upon it. <laughs>
I have your life, Father, except that we don't. <laughs> like, we have embraced life. We've chosen it. We have told Madeline, your family. And I can't wait to see what's next for her. And I can't wait to see what's next for all of us. Thank you all so much for two and a half years of support as I have embarked on this crazy journey. I loved, oh my God, can you hear my voice? It's done. We're done, baby. I got to go to bed. <laughs> you really have to go to bed. It's like 4.30 in the morning where you are. Oh, listen, we just passed 4.20. <laughs> so That's why we're going to sign off and have a little inferno of our own. But <laughs> before that, Sarah Century, thank you so much for being my guest. This has been yes. an absolute pleasure. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? We talked a little bit about your short story collection, but that was literally like 18 hours ago. So maybe remind them. Oh, God. Yeah, I wrote a list because I'm always doing so many things. Um, you are I a busy bee. wrote a short story collection called A Small Light and Other Stories. I think that anybody who really likes Madeline would probably like it. It is a lot of me sympathizing with queer villains and every story is me sympathizing with myself, a queer villain. And <laughs> we have a horror podcast now. I've been doing this thing called Decoded Horror Channel, which is adapting stories, short horror stories, and also doing kind of scripted things. So there's a story going on right now called Tales from the Sapphire Bay, where I play a horror host like the old elvira elvira kind of slash like vincent price yes very fun i love it so check out decoded horror channel because that's something that i'm coming like right back to i had to take a break while i was moving obviously we still have bitches on comics i am not always hosting bitches on comics these days we're kind of doing uh rotating hosts at this point and every episode is a gem i'll say that so check out bitches on comics as always i have been recording for the patreon of bitches on comics priya Sixena and i have been doing oh i love priya priya is an incredibly wonderful person and priya and i have been going back over actually stuff that would appeal to many people who listen to this podcast on our Patreon, which is we're doing like a bitches of X kind of jokey kind um. of thing where we're going back over a lot of the early issues of the Claremont X-Men. And right now the way that that's kind of panning out is like me as a 40 year old and Priya as like a 20, I believe three she's young. Yeah. Right. And so to me, it's just like, I'm like, one millennial who is the geriatric kind and one Gen Z person <laughs> talking, <laughs> about talking about Chris stuff. Claremont, X-Men. Love it. Yeah, so that's been really fun. So we've been doing that. And then it's basically right now I'm just working on completing a novella that's been in the process for like maybe the last like three years or something. And that's about it. Oh, and you can find me, of course, on maybe Twitter, I guess, at Sarah Century. I have a website, sarahcentury.com, bitchesoncomics.com. 
DakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakotaDakota